Legendary Japanese wrestler and promoter Antonio Inoki died on Friday at age 79, as it was announced in Japan just shortly before WWE SmackDown went on the air. WWE did have the opportunity to remember him uh, in that show. You know, very briefly, they did it again Monday night on Raw, though there was not a video package in either case on SmackDown. They even mentioned his controversial title reign that is not officially recognized in WWE's record books, but technically, Anoki was the first ever Asian WWF champion. For them to mention that was particularly unexpected. Anoki was a 12-time world champion and the first IWGP heavyweight champion as the founder of New Japan Pro Wrestling, which he started actually after a failed coup attempt to take over another Japanese promotion. He was most famously known stateside for his fight against Muhammad Ali in 1976. It's largely credited for being a precursor to modern MMA, and it was also highly controversial at the time due to some stuff that Anoki pulled during that fight. It is worth reading up on that. Also controversial were the two shows he headlined against Ric Flair in North Korea back in 1995. Anoki actually became a politician in Japan as he ended his in-ring career. He had two six-year terms in their house, uh, one in the 1990s and another that actually ended just three years ago. He was best known in that role for negotiating the release of Japanese hostages from Saddam Hussein prior to the Gulf War. Throughout his career, uh, he also trained the great Muda, Shinsuke Nakamura, Crush, Brian Adams, and the original Tiger Mask. WWE inducted him into their Hall of Fame in 2010, and Antonio Noki now rests as indeed one of the most legendary professional wrestlers of all time. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That, uh, with your WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened this week in WWE as the company goes home to Extreme Rules coming up this week. Saturday from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, an appropriate location for an extreme premium live event card. The Silver King is here. Vintage Chris Vanini will join in a moment. We're going to break down every single match on that show. Of course, everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. But I would be remiss if I began any episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast without our reminder that this show is So please, folks. Go back to being marks for the Silver King and Vintage Chris Vanini. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings for us. And on Apple Podcasts, take an additional moment and leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen. Tell them why they should subscribe. Just as Harley Joseph did recently, leaving us a five-star review. Five stars and bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. I've been listening to the Silver King since his ITC days. And I will say you cannot find an analysis more thorough than the Getting Over podcast. He and Vintage Chris Vanini not only break down what is happening in pro wrestling, but more importantly, why it is happening. When you cannot watch wrestling week to week, this podcast is tremendous at keeping you up to speed. Their Twitter feed is highly interactive, and I feel like I can connect to both hosts easily. Get this in the rotation today, exclamation point. That's a great review, Harley Joseph. 
Thank you so much for leaving us that. And yes, that is an indication that we will read every five-star review left for us here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So you spend a little time writing it. We will spend our time reading it out here. Also, please do not forget to follow this show on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only do we talk about professional wrestling all week long during the major shows, sending out you know fun GIFs, videos, images, retweeting wrestlers, things that are funny and important. Uh, but we also provide extra content on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You get to vote in our pre and post show polls surrounding premium live events and pay-per-views. And you can join us for live interactive shows on Twitter spaces, which we do preceding every premium live event or pay-per-view. And wouldn't you know it, another one of those will be coming up this Saturday prior to Extreme Rules. We're looking at most likely a 7 p.m. Eastern start. The Silver King, hopefully Vintage, will join as well. And we will break down every single match one last time on the Extreme Rules card right before that show begins. So please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Vote in our pre- and post-show polls and join us for our live pre-show on Twitter Spaces ahead of Extreme Rules. Okay, Chris, that was an absolute mouthful. Let me welcome you to today's show as we get into talking about the week in WWE. I did think that SmackDown on Friday was an extremely odd episode. I would even perhaps go so far as to say, without being negative, that it was maybe the worst SmackDown that we've gotten thus far under the Triple H era. It just kind of felt disjointed, and perhaps that was largely due to Hurricane Ian. I know there were a number of segments on the show that were affected uh, by superstars not being available because of that. We saw some of the same with AEW Dynamite last week, although with Dynamite, the what was reported to be the changes didn't really seem like it would have affected the quality of the show. But I did find SmackDown, like I said, odd. It was a strange show. And then going into Raw, on Monday night, the first hour of Raw, I felt was boring as sin. And then all of a sudden, 9 p.m. hits and the show turns on a dime. I thought the last two hours were fantastic. It was one of the most interconnected shows that WWE has put together in a while. Now that said, the Minnesota crowd was atrocious. It was probably the worst WWE crowd we've had in a month. That was a total shocker to me. But it was a real up and down week overall for WWE TV. And yes, technically there is still a go-home show Two Extreme Rules, SmackDown this coming Friday. But I look at these two shows as the real go-home, right? Because SmackDown's 24 hours before the premium live event. It's kind of tough to drum up that much more interest when you're that close. Uh, And so for that, I would say, again, the last two hours of Raw, really solid. The prior three hours, two of SmackDown, first hour of Raw, just didn't really hit for me. Well, let me start with this. Speaking of Hurricane Ian, you are in Florida. You're on the southern east part of the state. Yeah. Everything good with you? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you asking, but, you know, um, this was very much a west coast of Florida type of storm. I had wind. uh, I had one of my screens in my uh, lanai, which most people would call a patio, uh, knocked down a little bit. But I mean, it's a screen. It's $80 repair. Uh, But no, nothing really happened here. Rain, wind, uh, the dog, you know, had to go, had to wait to go to the bathroom. That was our biggest inconvenience. I didn't even lose power. Nothing like that. That's good. That's good. So I I have... Just generally around WWE right now, the last couple of weeks and especially this weekend, Friday, Monday, I'm not I'm not 
all like that excited going into extreme rules here. And I'm, I'm not sure how much of that has to do with football. We're in football season. It's mm-hmm. been an eventful NFL and college season. You and I, that's our day jobs doing college football and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I think about this card and I think about what we got at Clash of the Castle a month or so ago and just how much bigger that felt. And I think part of what it comes down to is I'm really into everything that's going on with the bloodline every time they make an appearance on my screen, but everything else is just lacking a little bit on different levels. Some of it's pretty good. Some of it's not, but this was also a raw in which we got a lot of the same kinds of people fighting the same kinds of people. It it, it kind of felt repetitive from what we've gotten over the last month or so. And so a a mixed bag of a go home show, I would say. I think that's a, a fair way to put it. WWE does seem is treating their B-show pay-per-views like B-show pay-per-views. Like it's kind of tough when you're looking at this card, right? And and there's nothing. I mean, I think you guys know. I don't I shouldn't need to qualify it. Uh I think the women's championships in WWE are super important. And I love the fact that it seems like one is going to main event this show, which is is great. But there is something to be said when you have Roman Reigns as a double champion the world title is not being defended. The Usos as double unified tag team champions, their title is not being defended. You have two extremely strong singles champions in Bobby Lashley and Gunther, and neither the Intercontinental Championship nor the United States Championship are being defended on the show. And you look at the card and the only titles on the line are the two women's championships. Now, that's not bad. Both of them should be on the show and one being a main event is fantastic. But... I mean, how do you not have any of the four men's titles on a pay-per-view premium live event? I'm going to start using these interchangeably and I'm going to stop correcting myself when I do. (laughs) Um, uh, When you, how are you going to build a show like that and just have every other match be a stipulation match? Most of them make sense. A couple really feel forced. You're going to do an Irish Donnybrook six-man match. Why not do that on the go-home and then have Sheamus and Gunther on the pay-per-view itself? I just think it's it's a very odd card the way it's been built. It's not lessening my enjoyment of the WWE product recently, but I do think it's fair in your part to kind of point out, hey, look, this isn't being treated like a major show because it doesn't feel like it's been built like one. And there's numerous examples, including the go-home Raw, two people who appeared via video, where if it was the go-home for SummerSlam, WrestleMania, Clash at the Castle, hell, maybe even Crown Jewel, those people would have been on the show live. And that that does make a difference in terms of intensity and just overall anticipation for the premium live event. I think your point there about the Donnybrook matches, essentially, we're getting Sheamus versus Gunther on the... It's the go-home SmackDown, right? Yeah. um, Into... I believe so. Yeah. Yes, it is. The go home smack. So, so we're getting that before the six man, but the intercontinental championship is the bigger match. It should so totally that, be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's why it feels like that combined with a lot of the kind of rematches and mixing that I mentioned, some of it right now feels like the old Vince era of WWE booking. Well, oh, I don't think that's fair at all. I think that's a huge just, just in terms of the, just in terms of the matches, putting the intercontinental belt on a SmackDown instead of the pay-per-view and having every combination you can have of the six women feud that's that's been going on. I just I'm very surprised to see it 
the six man in the Intercontinental not flip flop. That that on its own in a vacuum does seem like a Vince decision. I agree. But let's not forget. We also now have a United States championship on Raw, which is the season premiere of Raw. And they are attempting. Is this the season premiere of SmackDown on Friday? I think it is. So that's why. Think, that's why they're doing it. That's yeah. Why doing it. So which, which is. We've, it's sure understandable. It it, Chris, it's understandable. It, it's understandable yeah. that WWE wants their TV shows to feel important, especially on Mondays, still competing with Monday Night Football. And obviously Fox is the key deal in the entire thing. It's not abnormal for them to do that, but it is strange to have your season premieres like bookending a pay-per-view in in Extreme Rules and then treating those shows in terms of building those cards, not almost as important as Extreme Rules, but pretty damn close. I mean, you know, if they're treating extreme rules like an eight out of 10, those these shows are being built up like sevens out of tens. Like, like the way that the season premieres are built, maybe and, and maybe it is the fact that they bookend extreme rules. Maybe those are the reason why extreme rules doesn't feel as important because they're again, just I, yeah. I've made the criticism with AEW, right? You give us too many special shows in a short window. None of them feel special. I'm not saying that extreme rules doesn't feel like a premium live event. It does. Uh, I'm not saying that the season premieres or the season premiere of Raw has been built up extremely well. SmackDown, we just had to question ourselves whether it actually was it. But trying to do all three things in a four day span, that's probably one of the reasons why this show feels like it does. I agree. Chris, we have a ton of show left here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We will have a main event this week. We will then move into the good, the bad and the ugly. And of course, the featured portion of this show WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview. That will be at the end of today's podcast, an extended look at every single match and storyline on that card. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast much closer to Extreme Rules and you want to go ahead and skip over the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, hit our episode description, check out the timestamp, and you can go ahead and jump directly to the WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview. But of course, I hope you listen to every single part of this show. And we will begin by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. Now, we're going to focus the entire main event this week, Chris, on the White Rabbit, because we had numerous in-depth clues across SmackDown and Raw. The first clue aired on SmackDown immediately after a Karrion Cross video package. It led to a WWE URL that included... 1911, the same numbers Bray Wyatt had in his Mad Hatter top hat on a Firefly Funhouse episode where Alexa Bliss was with him. The video had cartoons of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf spliced with shots of a slaughtered pig and a wolf bleeding from its mouth. I presume this was a Huskus reference, at least to some degree. Uh, The alt text file name TS underscore S10E6 referred to The Simpsons, episode six of season 10 which, yes, featured the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Uh, There was also a Morse code audio message that translated to Azel Reborn. Azel is a demon that was sent a scapegoat bearing the sins of the Jewish people during Yom Kippur. I apparently missed this during Hebrew school. Anyway, this is (laughs) timely because Yom Kippur is actually this week. It was also a reference to an old FCW promo where Bray sings Time is on my side, a song That was a sign of possession from the demon, Azael, in the movie Fallen. 
A phone number was also hidden in the white rabbit image that led to a distorted audio that when you reversed it says Bravo Echo Lima Alpha India Romero, that spells Bel Air, with the quote, quote, uh, I am into, I say quote, quote, yeah, with the quote, quote, I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way into eternal sorrow. That is from Dante and Wyatt also said it in a promo once. Not long after this, a large physical black poster appeared behind commentary with revel in what you are written in large white letters. This is specifically something that Wyatt tweeted with a picture of the fiend on October 27th, 2019. That moves us to Raw. The White Rabbit clue appeared during a segment with Bianca Belair, hence her name being in the SmackDown clue. It looks like they're going with names instead of dates now. The binary code in this URL, a bunch of ones and zeros, spelled out Gacy. Now that could be referring to Joe Gacy in NXT, could also be referring to John Wayne Gacy, a serial killer known as Killer Clown, similar to The Fiend. Uh, The image was Samson and Delilah from the Bible. Delilah obviously betrayed Samson. So it's apropos that this was shown immediately after Alexa Bliss was on screen as she betrayed Wyatt at WrestleMania. Wyatt previously called her Delia also uh, on Twitter during their storyline. Also on the page was a second URL, a magic eye graphic and a bunch of symbols. The symbols were all language from the Predator movies, also a bunch of films I have not seen. Uh, Bray, though, is a fan of those films he said before. It translated to another Dante quote, before me, things create were none, save things eternal, and eternal I shall endure. The magic eye revealed a stereogram that translated to 10822, October 8th, 2022, the date of extreme rules. The second URL was actually coordinates of the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, where extreme rules is being held. And also the second URL led to another Samson and Delia art piece showing them destroying the Philistine temple together. On the bottom right of that image was a number that when you Googled it was a product code for white rabbit milk, which by the way, I have heard is actually very good. But Chris, with all of this, okay, it does seem as if we have reached the end of this journey. We're about to reach the bottom of the rabbit hole, if you will. Every single clue points, of course, to Bray Wyatt. And now it seems we might have an end date at Extreme Rules. I appreciated very much that both sets of these clues took different forms than the prior ones. And they also had different vibes. WWE did a great job of making this consistently entertaining and thought-provoking. During a commercial on Raw, they did the White Rabbit stuff in the arena again, and fans started chanting, we want Bray, which means this is really reaching its apex. If you wait too long for the reveal, it's going to get stale. The crowd could potentially grow sour and turn on it. You do it too soon, you lose the impact. The timing here seems to be perfect. And ultimately, I do think, Chris, we will see the return of Bray Wyatt at Extreme Rules on Saturday. You know, I think back to the Triple H interview with Ariel Hawani where he was asked about Bray Wyatt. And he says, sometimes Bray's too far out there and basically kind of needs to be reined in a little bit. I'm now thinking that was a completely trolling answer because this is as <laughs> far out as anything that he has done before. And it so really is it's just yeah. part of the plan. Look, I'm. I'm not interested. I'm not super interested in the clues anymore. I caught some of them on Twitter. I kind of see what people say. Half of what you just described, I missed. But it also, we've learned over the last couple of weeks, isn't going to lead anywhere. But that's so also, this, let, me, let me quickly interrupt you. Yeah. That's also the cool part because you don't need every part of the clue. Right. You just right. need one of them. 
And if you get to figure out one of them and you're like, oh, it's Bray Wyatt, you know? Right. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's you just explaining all this is fun. Like, like it is, it is fun to hear all of that, but I'm like, all right, like we, we, we thought he might show up on that SmackDown, the first clue. It didn't happen. Now we realize maybe he'll show up at extreme rules. Maybe he'll, maybe that's the date of the next clue. I, I, I don't know. So I'm just at this point, like, all right, like it's fun. We know Bray, it's, it's, it's gotta be Bray Wyatt. Who's coming back. Maybe he has some people. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I'm interested to see what he does when he comes back, how he comes back. But at this point, it's like, all right, just like, I'm just kind of waiting for it to happen now. And I'm not like dying to see what the next clue is because it's not going to reveal something spectacular. We know what it is. Now. Right. We know it's we know it's Bray Wyatt. So but like, that's exactly the point. It has reached the end of that. Like yes. after this week, it's no longer the clues are no longer interesting. And that means it's the perfect time to end them. Yes. That's like that's the key to the entire thing. Here's my one concern. A lot of the references here are demonic devilish, things like that. And I want Bray Wyatt back. I don't want The Fiend back. At least I don't want the version of The Fiend that we had, given all of the difficulties that existed with booking The Fiend. Namely, if he's going to be so dominant, how do you keep him away from the championship? Or if you put him in the championship, like a match, for example, give him an opportunity, how do you not have him win? Now they tried to do that and failed with Seth Rollins and it absolutely killed Rollins as a babyface when he was supposed to be like the number one guy in the company at the time. And then they put the title on The Fiend. We've already discussed this. And you're like, well, how the hell is he ever going to lose it? And they came up with the worst possible way for that to happen with Goldberg spearing him and just pinning him, which was absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. So I hope that whatever they do with Bray returning, it is not simply The Fiend. The same as what we had with the Firefly Funhouse with Alexa Bliss by his side as if nothing happened. If it's a version of The Fiend that's different, it's it's made a metamorphosis to some degree, and it's now still dominant, but less unbeatable and a little bit more mysterious, taking on some Undertaker characteristics, perhaps. That, to me, is where Bray Wyatt needs to go. When The Undertaker went away from being the unstoppable dead man to the American badass, and then eventually a version of The Undertaker that was kind of a combination of the two, that is where you saw career longevity from him because he was believable, because he was someone that could be used in all different types of situations. You could certainly have him win at any time, but he could lose at any time as long as the odds were stacked against him. With The Fiend, you need to be able to have that out. You, you, You know, this character went from Bray Wyatt, who never won, to The Fiend, who never lost. And what they Mm -hmm. really need to do is figure out something in between. I hope it's either a meshing of both, um, a new, fresh take on The Fiend that is different from what it was, or my my, the best case scenario would be something completely separate altogether. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are to that end. Uh, Whatever it is, I trust Bray Wyatt to make it work for a period of time. There's there's nothing that he's done that has been a complete flop. Even stuff like the Swamp Fight, I enjoyed. I, I like The Fiend a lot more than other people did. I also loved Cult Leader Bray and Butcher Bray and stuff like that. Ultimately, it just didn't mesh with wrestling booking. It was a right. horror character, and that is a very difficult thing to 
portray on a week-to-week basis when you're on a fight a fake fighting show. So that's where you kind of gotta that's where you gotta make it work. And I I think Triple H realizes that. He see he 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 would know better than than anybody. So I'm optimistic that whatever it is will work. Um and just kind of gotta give it time. I, I thought Firefly Funhouse Bray was such a creative thing that they didn't do enough of like it became so much about the fiend it was either firefly bray doing the 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 the, the, the vignettes or fiend doing scary stuff when i felt like there could have been a lot more mixing i just thought there was a lot there so like this guy's made a lot of different things work but like triple h said you gotta kind of fit it in a wrestling landscape so we'll see i i i'm really not I, i'm optimistic but I'm not going to say anything more until we actually see anything. Yeah, right. And they did find something when they allowed the Firefly Funhouse character to wrestle, which yes, allowed so, him to, yes. which allowed him to kind of be exposed, allowed him to lose matches or or not be as dominant as obviously the Fiend was, which was basically unstoppable except for like one time or two times. One time Goldberg, Roman Reigns coming back in, you know, which Star Kick started this entire thing. I do find it interesting that through all these fiend teases, by the way, there has been, I don't think any mention of Reigns unless you want to talk about, um, you know, the call signs in the last clue kind of referring to the shield, which I definitely would say that. But, you know, there hasn't been anything really directly about Roman Reigns, which really should be the guy who he has a great vendetta against for taking his title, not to mention Alexa Bliss, who is mentioned seemingly Uh, frequently here, but not always in a negative way when she was the one who in a terrible storyline turn, uh, which eventually led to the Fiend's firing, uh, Bray Wyatt's firing, um, turned on him at WrestleMania in the situation with Randy Orton. So, you know, I just don't exactly know how they're going to put it all together, but I think you are correct in saying that they deserve the benefit of the doubt until it happens, because right now we're in the dark. We don't know what we're going to get. We don't know what it's going to look like, and we have no idea how it's going to be booked. But you know what? That's kind of what makes it all so exciting, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe I will be disaffined if it's disaffined. Uh, disappointed. If How did I combine those two words? <laughs> disappointed if it's just the fiend that we see and like the lights go out, they play White Rabbit during Extreme Rules and all of a sudden the fiend emerges from underneath the ring and, and that's, that's all it is. Like, yeah, I'm going to be super disappointed if that's it. Um, but at the same time, maybe I won't be like me. May, maybe the atmosphere is going to be so electric and people are going to be so excited to see him that even if they just go back to that character, it won't be that big of a deal. I'm just saying going into it, I wanted to provide my perspective and kind of set the table for everyone going into it. The best case scenario for me is neither the fiend nor the regular initial Bray Wyatt, some either mesh of those two or something completely brand new that we get to sink our teeth into a third incarnation of the Bray Wyatt character. To to your point there about the undertaker and his longevity. I I think that's a really good thing to point out because we've always said, Hey, Bray is the next undertaker, be a spooky guy for 20 years and, and have a career. But Bray and the undertaker are nothing alike in character other than being spooky. Right. Bray Bray takes things to the extreme all the time so hard that it has to be repackaged at some point. Nothing he's done can last because it either gets 
overexposed, like when cult leader Bray would cut a weird promo every single week and it would lead to nothing. And then he would lose matches. And then the fiend was so big, but you could only do that for so long. He gets in the title picture and it becomes a complete mess. He's yet to find something. Well, honestly, I think Firefly break could have lasted a long time, but, but they couldn't figure out how to make it work to your point there. If you want to do that with Bray, you kind of got to figure out something that can last. And I don't know exactly. if Bray can do that because he's so creative that it's it, it, things run their course and they have to change. So I'm curious, whatever this new thing is as well, eventually kind of how long it lasts, which is getting way ahead of things. But yeah. but it, it, it really is not at all like The Undertaker. He was he was uh, he was Undertaker. He was ministry, but it was not that different. You had Biker Taker and you had Dead Man Undertaker. That's it. And then the final version, which was like a amalgamation of all of them. Uh, yes. Wyatt is actually in, like we're comparing, we're making the comparison. He's actually in many ways the opposite, uh, the antithesis of The Undertaker in that he started as a normal guy. The Undertaker started as, you know, mm-hmm. the dead man Undertaker with the urn and the, and the mystic stuff and obviously all that. Uh, Bray Wyatt started as Bray Wyatt. He was a cult leader. Then he became this demonic supernatural character. And now we're waiting to see potentially what that third incarnation is. We mentioned The Undertaker um, as someone who kept reinventing himself to some degree and that elongated his career. Very similar. Let's not forget his Mick Foley, right? Uh, He came in as Mankind. They were able to do the Dude Love thing. They did the Cactus Jack thing. And then they ended up kind of doing Mick Foley, which depending on what they needed, could have been any version of any of those. It was usually either a Cactus Jack or a Mankind but really, at the end, at the end, at the very end, was Mick Foley. That's who he was, yeah. right? Now, I'm not expecting Bray Wyatt to take that track necessarily. As you said, the creativity there is far too out there for him to ever just be Wyndham Rotunda at the end of the day. I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, but I am certainly curious and intrigued to see what we get. Is it going to be at Extreme Rules? And are we going to like it? And we will be able to share our exact thoughts on that with you Saturday night as soon as Extreme Rules goes off the air, as we will have our WWE Extreme Rules instant analysis podcast that I'm just realizing, Chris, I did not mention at the start of the show. So I'm glad I got to do it right here. Chris, that was the main event. Let's move into the second part of today's show. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now we are going to go ahead and wrap up everything that went down across SmackDown and Raw that does not exactly have to do with Extreme Rules. There's going to be a couple segments here that are tangentially related to it, but I didn't want the Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview to get too long, so I did decided to put them in this section. Again, we're going to talk about everything that happened on SmackDown and Raw, and we are going to grade it good, bad, or ugly. So let's start with Candice LeRae against Dakota Kai. LeRae got support backstage from Bianca Belair, Alexa Bliss, and Asuka that preceded the first White Rabbit QR code that I was talking about from Raw. Bailey yelled at her during the match about leaving her baby at home. LeRae caught Kai in an octopus hold, but Kai escaped and got her with a running boot while LeRae was on the top rope. Candice jumped to the bottom rope to powerbomb Dakota off the second rope inside the ring. EO Sky distracted, letting Bailey trip LeRae on the ropes with Kai folding her over, a lot of pressure on her legs, you know, with her on her back for the win in 10 minutes. I thought it was really strong wrestling here. The heels winning with a three-on-one advantage is completely fine, but it made kind of no sense why the faces who dapped up Candice backstage didn't support her at ringside, 
knowing she would be at a disadvantage. But that said, it was good wrestling. They got plenty of time and it got the strong group more over, which was the goal. Yes, I'll have more thoughts on damage control probably later in the show, but this was a fresh-ish matchup that played off of something that happened last week. Damage control got to look strong with the numbers. That's fine. I give it a good. I just love that it was two women who weren't on the main roster, you know, what, two months ago? And here mm-hmm. they are in a featured match on Raw that was super entertaining. Like, it it just shows you with a little bit of effort into women's wrestling you, what you can actually accomplish. You can put on regular good wrestling matches. And by the way, you can have more than one on the same show because we had Alexa Bliss versus EO Sky backstage later during a contract signing. Uh, Damage Control attacked Asuka and Bliss. Asuka was screaming with her leg crushed in a chair as Bliss huffed and puffed, really angry, demanding to get EO before the night was over. Bliss in the match avoided EO's moonsault and hit Twisted Bliss, but Bailey distracted the referee on the cover. Belair pulled her off the apron, but got attacked two-on-one outside with Kai. Bliss then hit a cannonball off the apron to take out the heels, but EO recovered with a palm strike. She added an air raid crash and a moon over moonsault for the win in 10 minutes. Again, another really good wrestling match that got plenty of time. Bliss was weak offensively at the start. She definitely held her own in the finish. And I just loved the simple booking here of putting the two members of Damage Control over a couple baby faces ahead of what may be, to this point, the biggest moment in the group's existence, Bailey challenging for the title at Extreme Rules. So this is where I'm a little kind of eh about all of it, because we got two Damage Control matches, but Damage Control's not in a match at the show. There's Bailey not like is. a six... Bailey is. She has damage right. control. But I'm, I'm saying like EO and, and, and Dakota are just like, just they're, they're off on the side. This didn't, these two kind of on their own didn't exactly build to the match to me until That's the end correct. of the show. That's until, correct. Until the end of the show. So at this point in the show, I was like, all right, I'm kind of, I am very, very just done with damage control versus Bianca Bliss and Asuka. To well, me, it's just Bailey okay. Bianca. That's what I like. That's what I, I care about. But because Bailey has a group, Bianca's got to have a group. And Alexa Bliss has been doing nothing for months, and Asuka's been doing nothing for months. And I just I don't buy their friendship really at all. There, there's nothing really to it that we know. They're just three people that were put together. And so, you know, it wasn't bad. Like I got it. It made sense. I just didn't really care. At, well, at this point, so let me talk more to that in a moment. Before I do, what is your grade on the match? I, I guess I'll give it a, a light good because like, okay. I, I understood what they were going for and they did it. OK, so after the match, the heels continued to attack. Once the bell rang, Belair ran down, tried to save Bliss, but got run through with a ladder. Asuka in a knee brace from the attack earlier. She limps her ass down to the ring with a kendo stick. She looked like a total badass here, which I miss seeing Asuka look like a badass. And then she swings this kendo stick like she's Aaron Judge and murders Dakota Kai in the back of the head. I, I was like, holy shit, she killed her. I, I thought something really bad happened right there. Um, then she, Asuka ate a drop kick from EO. They dropped a ladder on her. Then they put Bliss between the ladder, stomping it closed on her prone body, leaving her lifeless. And then Bailey hit her with the rose plant. Now we're going to discuss Bel Air and Bailey in the ultimate preview. You can kind of see I chopped this up to focus mm-hmm. on these two women. But Chris, 
to, to go back to what you just mentioned, to me, this was clearly a concerted effort to end the three-on-three feud, potentially write off Asuka for a vacation, given she was already wearing a brace and they hurt her knee again, and provide a reason for Bliss to potentially change her character if she is involved with the White Rabbit, Bray Wyatt, or whatever. And if that's the case, I thought this was extremely well done to that end. The feud served its purpose because it helped establish damage control. To your point, Belair, Asuka, and Bliss never really made sense as a trio, though let's not forget, Becky Lynch was supposed to be in the Bliss role. So it was supposed to make sense because Becky and Asuka were feuding, Becky made up with Belair, turned babyface. So that's what this was supposed to be at that time. But by doing the injury angle with Asuka and hurting Bliss in a significant way, it feels like this was a write-off to say, okay, this trio is no longer together. Bliss can maybe go her separate way. Asuka maybe takes a little bit of a break. And now Belair all of a sudden is exposed because she doesn't have anyone having her back at Extreme Rules. I think, you know, I agree with you. It went on a little bit too long, this three-on-three feud. But to end it this way for me made for a really strong go-home moment as well. I thought it was the best in the ring Dakota and EO have looked since they returned. And we'll talk more about Bailey later, like I said. It was also the best damage control has looked in terms of booking and dominance as a group since their debut. It was a really important week for them. And I loved what we got post-match. It did feel like it ended a little bit too soon and we were waiting for something, but sometimes timing just doesn't work. So I thought not only were both matches individually good, the post-match I thought was really good as well. We'll see. My my, my thought on the post-match was they won't be available for Extreme Rules. I, I, I don't know yet if Asuka's taking a break or Alex is doing whatever, or if we'll be back in this spot on, on Monday or something. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, I took it as writing them off for the match for Saturday, which I do think is a good a good thing. Okay, fair enough. We will find out who is right about that probably Monday, I guess, on Raw. We'll see if Asuka shows up, and if she does, if she's still aligned with Belair, uh, and we'll see what happens with Alexa Bliss as well. So all to be determined. Uh, Sami Zayn and Solo Sokoa fought Ricochet and Mad Cat Moss on SmackDown. Moss actually got light booze on his hot tag because he was fighting Sami. That is how over Zayn is right now, that he's a heel getting cheered against the guy in Mad Cat Moss who is super over with the crowd. Uh, Sokoa grabbed a chair, but Rick held his foot and Moss pounced him off the apron. Zayn came back with a blue thunderbomb, but Moss caught Sammy flying, countering into a jackhammer. With the referee distracted, Ricochet's tope suicida was intercepted, with Solo literally throwing a chair directly at his head. Then Sokoa rammed him into the post and threw him into the timekeeper's area. The lights briefly went out with no explanation. Moss hit two shoulder tackles on Zayn, but Sokoa blind tagged with a spinning gill kick and his spinning uranagi for the win in 13 minutes. Zayn talked trash after the bell when Moss grabbed his neck. Uh, Sokoa got his back and Sammy tried to calm Solo down at the end, uh, but he hit two huge hip attacks into Moss to end the segment. The throne chair shot with Ricochet was a highlight. He's going to fight Solo this coming week on SmackDown, but I thought the whole match was strong. This was about the dynamics of Zayn and Sokoa. The jackhammer was a really nice finisher for Moss, but he used it as a signature here, which I thought was strange when you have a move that impactful, which obviously people like Goldberg have used as a finisher. As usual, the biggest takeaway is that Moss needs a complete repackage. We've said it for months. He's extremely uh, high ceiling. He has an extremely high ceiling, but he's limited by his awful name 
and his generic gimmick. And I couldn't help but wonder if Sokoa taking him out in the post-match the way he did is perhaps a reason for him to take a break and come back a little bit different. I thought this was a very good opener to the show. It was definitely a good. The Sam, I, I'm loving the Sammy solo stuff because you know we've had Sammy and Roman. That's its own thing. Sammy and Jay is its own thing. But Sammy and Solo, that's where Sammy feels powerful. That's where he feels like, oh, this is the new guy in the group. I was already here. Let me take him under my wing. It's like a whole nother dynamic to the Sammy State character. And also, since he became honorary Oos and he's been getting cheers and cheers and he did in this match, he's really trying to be heelish now. Very hard, yeah. He, he is. Now that he's in the group, he, they're, they're beating up people backstage. He's making comments to people. He's walking around all confident, feeling himself, talking down to people. And he's still kind of getting cheered. Uh, we, we, but I do wonder if like it's going to turn to booze or if they're trying to turn it back to booze for at least a period of time before they flip it back again. This is no longer Sami Zayn trying to be one of the cool kids. He's in the group now. And so he's not facing, at least since last week's SmackDown, he's not... Uh, he's not being put down like he was before. And he's just, he's, he's, it's a, it's kind of another twist on what he's been doing. It's really interesting stuff. I'm loving him in solo again. And yeah, this was, this was definitely good. And when I talk about, when I said at the beginning of the show that I'm really into everything with the bloodline, not so much everything else. This is another example. Every week they throw a little different thing on there and it's totally interesting. It's just such good storytelling. Well, the good news for you is we have a lot more Bloodline stuff to talk about because after the match, the Bloodline locker room was locked. Uh, Jey Uso opened it for Solo. He let him in. Uh, but he said he saw through Sammy and he threatened him and at first wasn't letting him into the room. Zayn told him, take it up with Roman Reigns. And then he walked by uh, Jay forcefully to get into their locker room, as he said. Later, Kevin Owens came across Zayn. Uh, he disrespectfully laughed at his honorary Oose shirt. This was relatively thin compared to like what we normally get with the bloodline. Given it was in Canada, I presume Jimmy was still unable to enter the country because of the DUI. I'm going to give it a good here, though, because they advanced the Sammy and Jay storyline and the Zane Owen storyline on the same show. Yes, definitely. Again, overall, I've seen some criticisms of the Triple H era that it's too much wrestling. And I don't I, I agree that I think sometimes the matches have gotten too long. We've talked about that. But there are a lot more. It feels like there are a lot more backstage segments, just bits and pieces totally. throughout the show. And that keeps me up. That keeps me captivated. And this is an example of that, um, of, of just like, oh, it's a little thing backstage, but it's like an acknowledgement. Like, hey, this is still going on. And like, oh, OK, like that was I'm paying attention. So so. I, I, I really did like this backstage segment for, for that reason. This is what WWE has done under Triple H. They have taken away some of, not all, but some of the long drawn out promo segments in the ring. And with that saved time, they've split it evenly between matches, giving the matches more time and backstage storyline development segments. Uh, one of the things we talked about on Raw, which we're going to get to Raw in a moment here, and a lot of it did have to do with the bloodline, was the interconnectedness of the show, multiple things happening backstage, revisiting the same people, you know, so for example, damage control was seen throughout the entire show. Bloodline had a number of roles throughout the entire show. And that is what's happening. They're taking away the boring storyline development and they're turning it into match time and more interesting 
real life interaction between humans backstage and sometimes in front of the stage as well. So I think that is what we're seeing. And again, let's not forget, everyone's finding their footing with this new regime, right? Triple H is figuring out the way he wants to book. Just because we like what he's doing doesn't mean it's all going exactly as he planned or that he has all the answers. He's still in this role on the main roster for the first time, especially for an extended period. So he's doing a really good job. And yes, I think, you know, to your comment, that is what we're seeing. We're seeing a divvying up of that extra time in those two different phases of uh, the show, wrestling and storyline progression away from the fans backstage. Speaking of, uh, Sammy and Jimmy were clowning backstage on Raw with each other. Solo was laughing while they were having a good time when Jay was angry that they were having fun and not handling business. Zayn started leading them to the ring when they bumped into the Street Profits, telling them to prepare to acknowledge the Tribal Chief next week on Raw. Angelo Dawkins stopped Montez Ford from telling the bloodline, he was going to say, respect these nuts. Uh, The camera then panned down to show Ford with a boot on his right foot as Dawkins got into it with Jay and then Solo and ended up getting a singles match out of that. I forgot if it was last week or two weeks ago, but the Prophets made a babyface save at some point um, against the Usos. And it seemed very clear like they were going to get another title match. Ford's injury explains not only why that hasn't happened yet, but why the storyline progression has slowed. I still don't understand why they will get the shot, given they've lost twice. I guess we'll see. Um, But it was interesting the way that they informed us Ford was hurt by flashing to the hard boot on his right foot, rather than making a statement that he's injured or him saying it on Twitter. They just said, hey, notice this. And then they panned right back up and continued with the storyline. I thought that was really good production, really smart camera work. In terms of setting up the singles match, it was intense enough to get the job done. I don't have a grade here. I just wanted to pause and give you an opportunity before we talk about the match. Yes, it was good to let us know that that uh, Montez is in a boot and hopefully he's not gone for too long because uh, he's incredibly talented. So it was it was good to kind of get that update and explanation. So then we got Dawkins against Sokoa in the singles match. Solo got angry early and grabbed a chair. Sammy tried to calm him down, but Jay got in the way. Sokoa hit a massive hip attack in the corner. Dawkins made a run with his spinning moves and the double underhook swinging neckbreaker. Sammy and Jay argued on the apron. Dawkins got distracted and ate a super kick, but the referee was slow to count because he was also distracted. Sokoa yelled at both of them. Dawkins pounced him off the ring. Zane then tried to console him outside when Jay pulled Sammy off and Jimmy stepped between them, stopping them from arguing outside. Dawkins hit a huge tope con hero into the Usos and Sammy, and then he punched Zane. Uh, Sokoa used that opening. He was back in the ring. He hit his roundhouse kick and spinning solo, which is apparently the name of the Uranagi finisher for the win. He, by the way, in NXT did the Uso splash as a finisher. So clearly that's why they changed it. Although now that I'm thinking about it, the Usos use the 1D as a finisher. So there's really not a reason that Solo can't use the Uso splash anymore. Regardless, it seems like that is his finisher. Sammy raised his arm. Jimmy dapped him up after the bell. And Jay was not in the ring at all. Uh, We definitely, Chris, got two big meaty men bumping meat in this one. The action between Sokoa and Dawkins was super fun. The match was, though, clunky because of all the interference and distraction. That said, it was really a match that was all about developing the Sammy and Jay storyline, neither of whom were actually in the match. That seems to be coming to a head way quicker than I thought. I'm not saying that it's rushed, but I thought it would be a much slower burn before those two completely blow up against one another. Maybe Rain sits them straight next week or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, this was a good match and really good 
uh, storyline continuation with Zayn and Jay, in addition to the wrestling that we actually got. I really, I've really liked what Solo has brought to the group in the ring as essentially the powerhouse. You know, we, we, the, the Usos are taller, leaner, quick, high-flying guys. But Solo just brings a different aspect to, to what they do in the ring. And so it, it, it's, it's a good mix when you throw them in with Sammy and all those other things. So really enjoyed the match. Enjoyed everything that's going on. I don't know, Sammy, Jay, if, if they're going to build it up, bring it down, and bring it back. Because I think we've been expecting that the Bloodline will be in the War Games match. So we've got to get to November for that. So I don't really know where it goes or if it'll drag on or if they'll adjust it or what. But again, I'm just very entertained by everything that the Bloodline is doing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a way that the Bloodline isn't in the War Games match, but... I don't know how you would do that show with that main event and not have them in it. It it almost seems like it has to be the case. So we will definitely see. But yeah, I I continue to remain very intrigued uh, with what they are doing there. Uh, Bobby Lashley backstage said he will no longer be complacent as United States champion, or actually not no longer. He said he won't be complacent as United States champion. He pointed out how many big names he's already beaten and said he wants someone with the same hustle and desire to be his next challenger. Mustafa Ali stepped up saying he's got plenty of both and he's sick of waiting in the back of the line. Lashley told him, hey, just keep grinding. You'll get an opportunity. But Ali got in his face and demanded one immediately, which Lashley granted. This wasn't Ali's most believable, you know, character work and promo work, but it did get the job done. He's been far better, though, when given an opportunity to speak. So we ended up getting a United States championship match, I think. It may have just been a singles match. I I missed that. So, Chris, maybe you can look it up while we're talking. Uh, But Mustafa had new gear with the Chicago flag, but the same shitty revolution theme that he's been using. He missed a running dropkick at the bell. Ali got up early, countering a spear with a kick before hitting a tornado DDT and a tope suicida. Then he hit a great 450 splash onto Lashley's arm, which was holding like the bottom or middle rope. Lashley was surprised Ali kicked out of a spine buster and a dominator, yelling for him to stay down. Ali slapped him instead. Lashley hit two helicopters outside, and kept breaking the referee's count. Then he threw Ali into the timekeeper's area to purposefully try for a countout, considering this guy can't get pinned. Ali ran back in at two, uh, I said 2.99, 9.99, right before the count of 10. Uh, Lashley hit a spear with Ali's body flying through the air, but even in the hurt lock, Ali refused to submit with Lashley winning via knockout. After the bell, Lashley was getting ready to physically lift Ali and dap him up, put him over for having a lot of guts and gumption when Rollins ran in with a regular stomp and then a second stop on Lashley into the title. Then he hit the stomp on Ali to end the entire thing. Lashley later promised to crush Rollins throat and make him scream for mercy next week on Raw. And he said he'd even put the title on the line against him just to make sure he showed up. Bobby was super animated here. And on WWE social media, I do wish they showed this on the show. um, There was a clip backstage of Lashley dapping up Ali and kind of putting him over for a really good fight. This match went 12 minutes, Chris, and to my surprise, completely revolved around establishing Ali as he went toe-to-toe with the top champion on Raw. This is the type of stuff you love to see. The booking here was perfect. Ali showed guts beyond expectation, and he ultimately lost only for the guy, the babyface who was angry, to kind of understand, hey, I can't be angry. I got to respect this guy, and his perception changed in the process. Having Rollins seemed 
unnecessary. It, it kind of took away from the moment. Even if they're going to run Lashley Rollins back, they could have just restarted it next week. But that hardly detracted from this entire thing, in my opinion, at least, being good. That was a good one, yeah. I'm of two thoughts here. And first, the match was awesome. Of course, Ali looked great. Bobby Lashley looked great. They played off of each other really well. Exciting match. Got time. Loved it. But then there's the other part of me that kind of steps back and is like, Bobby Lashley should not be in a struggle with Mustafa Ali. He just, he shouldn't be. He has been built as this dominant U.S. champion. He can do all these amazing things. He blocked the Seth Rollins stomp uh, last week or whatever that was. And now he's struggling to put away Mustafa Ali. I was like, I, it just, it doesn't feel right. And it's more of the larger issue of Bobby Lashley's not doing anything. And he hasn't been doing anything since the Austin Theory feud ended. And it's very strange. Well, now we know why. he's not. Well, maybe. Well, no, the reason why is because he did the match with Rollins and they were going to do another match with Rollins and they didn't want to give him another contender between those two dates. So therefore, he's been doing nothing. Ali, they used to get Ali over, which I think they successfully did. And now we're going back to Rollins right away on Raw this coming Monday. Right, but is... It, it, it was also weird to do that while the, the, we still got the Riddle-Rollins match. Some of the order of the way the stuff was booked was weird. I, I, I guess if we're going to go to Bobby Rollins after that, but just before the finish, before Rollins came in, as this match was going on, I'm like, why is Bobby Lashley not having... Why, why, just like, why is he not putting... It just didn't fit with the history of what we've been told about these guys for a period of time. So if it is Lashley Rollins moving forward, that should be fun. That should be interesting. I did like the post-match stuff for that reason. But in terms of the match, I was just of kind of two different minds for that reason. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's Lashley Rollins moving forward. It's Lashley Rollins on Monday. And I mean, if you're doing that match back and you're putting the title on the line and Lashley has already beaten Rollins, not for nothing. I mean, it's possible we get a Seth Rollins U.S. championship win this coming Monday on Raw. I don't think they should do it. I wouldn't book it that way. Um, but maybe they do. And we will certainly find that out. It could be very similar if they do decide to do that. It could be very similar to what they did with Roman Reigns a couple of years ago, where he hadn't had a title for a really long time. And they gave him the Intercontinental Championship for a little bit before he eventually went back to win the World Championship. So maybe that's what they're doing with Rollins and he will beat Lashley. Uh, maybe Lashley wins the title back a few months later. You know, they could potentially run that match back um, at Survivor Series, seeming as neither of them potentially would have to be in the Bloodline right. War Games match, although maybe Lashley probably should be. But look, we got a long way to get there. I am very I am very intrigued to see what the booking ends up being on Saturday in the Rollins match. We'll talk about that later. And then on Monday on Raw against Lashley. One more thing before we move on here, Chris. Ali has been sporting like a completely different look on live events recently. So I initially thought it was strange that he wasn't wearing that gear here. But if this entire booking was meant to kind of be a catalyst for Ali's character to change on television, then it would then make sense for him to debut that gear next week or going forward. It's really cool. He has this really ornate scarf. There's a lot of golds and blues. It looks kind of royal without being a royal type of look, but it's it's... I assume meant to represent Ali's Muslim heritage is, is what I believe it all to be. Um, so I'm very kind of curious to see what exactly they 
do here uh, with Ollie. If it's just, hey, next week, Ollie's back and it's the same guy and now he's getting featured or if they actually do utilize this as a way to kind of reinvent him a little bit, which is what can, I hope because Ollie is super good. Can I tell you what I think is going to happen? I yeah. don't think anything's going to happen. <laughs> We've had this conversation all the time. Is this the moment Mustafa Ali gets the push and gets the TV time and gets the whatever? And it just it doesn't happen. So if it happens, great. But but I mean, I'm, this I'm, is a I'm, this is a case, though, where they there was a concerted effort here to get Ali over. Maybe. There have been those before, and they just they didn't go anywhere. I, I think even, was it the first or second episode of the Triple H era? Ali got a, he a match? Fought, he fought with uh, Cedric Alexander in a tag team match, I think it was. And looked Something good. Like, I, yeah, but like, I, I don't know, man. There's been so many starts and stops. I'm not going to think twice about it until we actually get him two weeks in a row. So we'll see. No, that's totally fair. I, I, I agree that he's great, and I'd love to see him more. I've just been, we've been burned so many times on him and Ricochet and other things that I'm not going to. No, I think those things are totally fair. I just think like with Ricochet, to be fair, over on SmackDown, he's being put front and center featured. He's winning matches. He's looking good here. When you have Bobby Lashley, one of your most over baby faces, the the lone male singles champion on your brand right now, not only going toe to toe, you said you just pointed out how strong Lashley has been built going toe to toe, giving this guy that much offense, getting frustrated that you can't put him away and then lifting him up after the match. And dapping him up backstage. Again, that was only on social media. I mean, that is a concerted effort to say, this is someone we believe in that we are trying to elevate. For one week. For just, at least this week, it was a concerted effort. Yes, yes. I need to see it more. Uh, that's totally fair. Austin Theory said on SmackDown, he learned his lesson about rushing his money in the back cash in from his failures at SummerSlam and Clash at the Castle. He talked about McIntyre embarrassing himself in front of his friends and family in uh at Wales, in Wales, I guess is, is where it was. Uh, Drew appeared behind him while he was talking shit, stared him down, and then, of course, demanded a match immediately. So we had McIntyre and Theory. Alpha Academy accompanied Theory. McIntyre was preparing for the Claymore when Otis dragged Drew out of the ring and threw him into the steel steps. They attacked three on one. That was a disqualification, of course, until Gargano and eventually Owens ran down to make the save. So in pure uh, Teddy Long fashion, we got a six-man tag later in the show. McIntyre, Owens, and Gargano against Theory and Alpha Academy. KO hit a cannonball and a senton bomb on Chad Gable. Theory avoided Claymore with McIntyre thrown into the steps. Gargano hit Otis with a tornado DDT outside. And then the director somehow missed both parts of the finish live, which was Owens hitting a stunner on Gable atop the announce table. And then McIntyre caught Theory attempting a rolling dropkick with the Claymore. He caught him with the Claymore inside the ring for the win. The direction of the finish was awful, as I just mentioned. Both the stunner and Claymore were missed live. It's almost impossible to do, yet it happened. However, they did replay both immediately so they could say, hey, we fucked up, but here you go. This is what the match was supposed to be. Other than that, there's not really much to say about this. It was good enough, but it was relatively unspectacular. Yeah, it was fine. You know, they 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 built to it. They had the match. It was great. It's another one of situations where, look, I, I really enjoyed the match, enjoyed the people in it, but they're just kind of not really doing much right now in, other than just kind of these these one-off things. So, it was fine. It was good. Enjoyed it. But nothing that was like, you know, in love with. A couple more things before we move on. During the singles match, Michael Cole said of Theory, quote, he could use an attitude adjustment, which is a pretty direct reference to John Cena. I presume an early tease for WrestleMania. Cole also mentioned Evolve and Dragon Gate during the six-man match, yes. which continues his streak of random promotion shout outs. Although, of course, I think WWE bought Evolve at the end or whatever. Um, it's great to see Cole just getting more comfortable 
uh, with each passing week, feeling like he can talk about whatever he wants on commentary. So I just figured I would call that out. Uh, let's, Chris, move over to Raw, where we had Johnny Gargano against Otis. There was a great video package with Gable and Otis that was posted on social media over the weekend that was promoting the Strowman match. They replayed it on Raw to my delight. We always talked about WWE putting its best content on TV. It's not a tough concept. Gargano in this match was rolling early until Otis caught him and threw him. Gargano avoided a Vader bomb, but ate a Lariat. Gargano then countered a press slam into a DDT. He tope suicided Otis into the announce table and then jumped over it to attack Austin Theory on commentary. He took Otis down with a tornado DDT outside. Uh, As Gable then distracted the referee, Theory drilled Gargano in the back with the Money in the Bank briefcase. Otis then hit World's Strongest Slam for the win. The heels attacked until Strowman made the save with a shoulder tackle on Otis. Theory ran away. Braun then threw Gable into the ring and demanded the bell get rung. That led immediately to Strowman against Gable. Braun immediately threw Chad out of the ring into Otis. During commercial, Otis physically tossed Braun over the announce table and got ejected, which I thought was awesome. Gable then hit him with a knee running Strowman into the post. Gable hit a shocking German suplex on Braun. He trash-talked Strowman and even slapped him. Omas and MVP were shown watching backstage. Gable caught Braun with a armbar over the ropes, but Strowman lifted him in the air. Gable did an eye gouge and he drop-kicked Braun's knee. He added a missile dropkick, but Strowman avoided the moonsault, hit a big boot and the last ride-style powerbomb for the win. And then Theory later said he would fight Gargano next week. I ran all this together, Chris, because it was basically one continuous segment with two matches, and I thought it was super entertaining. It kept me glued to the TV through the commercial break. Both matches were really well-booked. Gargano got an excused loss. Gable looked legitimate despite being a massive underdog to Strowman. Braun sold really well for him. If this was three months ago, Gable would have lost this match in two minutes. Instead, it was at least teased that he could actually win against Strowman. Obviously, Gargano for me was not the most ideal outcome, but again, it was managed well. He got the excuse. I don't really have notes here in terms of anything negative or critical, just a double good for both matches. I loved both of these. I, they were both unique matchups in that they were somewhat fresh that we don't see a lot. And the styles, you had a big guy and a smaller guy, and they had to work around that. And that made for just entertaining wrestling. And, and what both of them did was, was really fun. I was fine with Otis winning. I think Otis needs to get some of those spots, and he's the kind of guy, you put Otis and Gargano together, he's, he kind of should win that match. And Gargano is not jumping up to get in title picture or anything at this exactly. moment. So it's fine. It's not like he's some guy who needs to be protected and get all this other stuff. Uh, so yeah, this was this was fun. You know, the, the 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 suplex of Braun was incredible, and commentary sold the hell out of it too. I just I love when Chad Gable gets to shine and do stuff like that. Um, he over the last few months has has outperformed almost everybody on the roster in terms of just taking what he's given and doing something good with it. He He's just, he's incredible. And yeah, I just absolutely loved both of these matches. So you're at a double good for here, I assume. Yep. Uh, also, I should note before we keep going, given that they showed Omas during that match, I wonder if they're just going to do this match at Crown Jewel as like a spectacle rather than yeah. a bigger show. I think we talked about it last week or two weeks ago. Hey, maybe they might actually build both these guys up and then have them go head to head at WrestleMania. Maybe they're not going to do that. Maybe they brought Omos back. We were talking about it last week. Why the hell is Omos back to beating jobbers? Maybe they're doing it literally just to give Braun some competition for crown jewel, put on that big match. I think what Braun won 
the greatest Royal Rumble over there or whatever. So maybe the crown prince or, or whatever for the blood money in the sand likes him. I don't know. Uh, Omos is limited. I'm not excited if they do that match, but you want to talk about big meaty men slapping meat. I don't really know that there's two bigger or meatier men who could potentially slap meat than those two. Yes, agree. And and that that's something to build to. That's something to do with Omos and we'll see. Yeah. Uh, the Miz backstage on Raw was on the phone with Maurice saying he hasn't seen Tommaso Ciampa in weeks and he also refused to leave Raw until he got concrete answers about the situation with he who shall not be named. He said he refused to let his birthday celebration get ruined next week. And as he said that, Dexter Loomis cracked open a door and kind of appeared behind Miz. There was a red light in his background. Later, when Gargano was walking backstage, he saw Loomis petting a knocked out Miz in the corner of his eye. Gargano, when he turned around, Loomis was gone. Miz was just laying there knocked out. So Gargano tried to wake him up and Miz got startled and he fought, found himself holding a picture of he and Loomis. You know, I don't like, I wish we could do a no grade or like a fair or something here because like this was the least eventful one of these that they've done, yet it was far better I thought than last week because it was simple and it was not complicated. Like I said, every week it seems to go one good, one bad. It's going on too long. There's not really a clear resolution of what they're going to do here. So because it's kind of up and down and last week I went with bad, this one I'll go ahead I'll lean towards good because it was short, simple, and it didn't take up too much of the show. Yeah, last week I said, I think this is fully turning toward just being a comedy bit. Mm -hmm. And if that's what it is, I'm fine with that. I liked it last week, the the Edmonton Oilers thing they did. And this one was, there was not much there. It was just one little thing. It was kind of funny. That's about it. So (laughs) that's all I can say. So what's your grade? Uh, Good. All right. Uh, Max Dupree approached Maximum Male Models backstage. The models promised to make him proud by bringing home a title. He got really excited about that until he learned the title that they wanted was the Canadian record for longest pose, not the tag team titles from the Usos. Max walked away uh, and then Hit Row interrupted, breaking their concentration. So the models later held the pose a second time. They did it through multiple commercial breaks. They kept showing them. With seconds left to break the record, Max ran into Mansois. He said, this ain't for me. He pulled off his belt that had a big M on it. He threw it at them. He walks away and he goes, yeah. Uh, so clearly this is the catalyst for Max to change back into LA Knight. What they've done to break him away from MMM has worked perfectly. Now they have to stick the landing. They need to come up with an explanation when he redebuts, whether it's LA Knight, whether it's a different name, whatever the case, they need to kind of say, this is why he is who he is and Max Dupree wasn't real. You know, he's playing a character or he's putting something on. Whatever the case is, they're going to need a way to figure it out or I should say explain it to the audience beyond us knowing that he was previously LA Knight and just got called up and was given a really shitty role as Max Dupree. So for now, this remains good, super entertaining. All the segments were solid. The separation makes sense. And it seems like they're going to keep MMM together with Maxine Dupree. That works perfectly well. She was really good here. She was really good with the camera last week. So as far as I'm concerned, Maximum Male Models is still trending in a positive direction. And yes, Max becoming LA Knight or whatever he's going to be again, that is positive as well. Completely agree. You know, I I just, I really like what LA Knight slash Max Dupree slash Eli Drake does and I think he's always been a main roster guy. Now we, we're we're finally going to get that. I think to to this point, the modeling thing was funny. Look, 
Marseille and 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 what they're doing with that. Like Mansoir. it's still completely yeah. ridiculous. And it's good and ridiculous. It's the best. It's ridiculous. Good ridiculous. Yes. And the two of them are selling the hell out of it. Like they're really going for it. And that matters. That makes you buy into it being how goofy it is. It's, there, there, there's a lot of effort into that and you can see it. It's fun. And Maxine Dupree is working in that spot. And in terms of whatever the next step of L.A. Knight is, you can just say his real name was Max Dupree and he's just, I'm not Max anymore. I'm L.A. Knight. I'm moving on, whatever. You, you can just start there. He can just say I'm 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 something else now. And I think it'd be fine. I think you could say I tried what it is. I think you could say I tried to reinvent myself and find a niche. In I, WWE. I don't even think you can. I, I think you could just start with him being Max Dupree and he's I'm just I'm done with modeling. I hate modeling. I'm I'm, I'm here to win. I'm L.A. Knight. Um, whatever, and it's fine. You don't you don't need to know his backstory. Nothing nothing he did in NXT is going to translate up, really. So Agreed. I just That's I don't true. think there's not much. I don't think there's not and there's much you really need to to do. La Knight was such a ridiculous name that the they, name is so they, bad. They just went with it. <laughs> I mean, for for anyone who who never listened to our NXT shows, Chris, let's give him a little bit of a a recap of your and I thoughts on him. Okay, um, you basically from the beginning loved LA Knight in terms of the character, the work he did, everything. I thought the name, and I still think to this day, the name is atrocious. It sounds like the hockey team name. It just doesn't make any sense why you would call this guy LA Knight when you could come up with so many, what was it? Eli Drake was his old name. Eli Eli Drake. So Eli Knight, or I mean, there's so many other, you can, there's puns you can make with Knight. There's a million different things you can do. And they call him L.A. Knight, and the logo was shiny. It kind of looked like a hockey team logo. It had the Knight logo, like the, a Knight, like a face gear type of thing. It just, it, I hated it, and I didn't like him. I thought him as a heel was terrible. It didn't work. And then all of a sudden, the switch flipped, and he became a baby face in NXT, and the creative juices became titillating in NXT. It really kind of got you going, and you understood everything that he was doing it didn't work as a heel, but it totally worked as a baby face. And that's when I became a fan. And just as I started liking him and we were we heard that he was getting called up and we were excited about that. All of a sudden, Max Dupree arrived on SmackDown. And even then, it was still really like he as an individual was doing a really good job, but it was not as good as what he had been doing over an NXT at the end of his run there. So that was, yeah. that's the Silver King's perspective. Chris, please share yours and then we'll move on. Yeah, and, and one thing, so if we get the Eli Drake, LA Knight character, we seem to be just kind of back to what he was. You'll notice this. He, he, I really, I think he's really, really good on the mic. Mm-hmm. And it's because he talks, he sounds like Stone Cold Steve Austin talking in the rocks cadence. He does, that is correct. It's it's a It's a very interesting combination that works. And he can be a jackass. He can be a, a face working across from a jackass and get the crowd working. I think there's a lot of potential there and I'm excited to see where it is. I assume he may feud with the models or something early on, but um, I, I hope they have some plans for him. I would do a clean separation if I was them. I, would I wouldn't t- have him fight them. I would just have him go off, do something else. Honestly, maybe even move him to raw. They need him on SmackDown, but you know, I don't know if they're going to do a roster shakeup or a draft or anything like that. But maybe you just need to completely separate him and put him on a different brand. Either way, step in a positive direction. Lastly here, ultimate preview is coming up. Hit Row versus Los Lotharios. Top dollar hit a double slam as Hit Row followed with heavy hitter for the win in two minutes. Nothing against Hit Row getting wins, but Los Lotharios 
are two incredible wrestlers and they're just being used as jobbers here. I don't understand why you would book this match and not have a real one where they get six, eight, 10 minutes and everyone gets to benefit at the end of the day. It was so short that it didn't even accomplish anything and it barely helped the winners who were Hit Row, who just a week ago, we were saying, hey, you know what? Maybe Hit Row is actually taking steps in a positive direction coming out of the eight man they did with the Street Profits. They were getting really exciting. Uh, Hit Row was getting positive crowd reaction, Top Dollar in particular. This, there was zero benefit to it whatsoever. So in a week where I thought, again, we might have an all good week, we actually do not because this right here, this was ugly. Uh, I would just give it a bad, a pretty clear bad. It was more just kind of a waste of time more than anything else. I kind of saved my uglies for, I'm kind of offended that they did this. And that wasn't the case here. It was just like, all right, whatever. I didn't really care. I tried to also, but I haven't given an ugly in a while. And this, I, I was like, I, I have the same mindset as you. I save the ugly for when it's like, like the, the Omos really jobber offensive. thing from last week. That's yeah. what I gave an ugly. Omos versus a jobber. This is. Honestly, not too far off to your point. This to me was, a t- it's a two minute match beating real. If, if you want them to, to squash someone, then use jobbers. If they did, I would have been fine with it. They use Los Lotharios. It, it didn't help them. It didn't, if, if you're going to do a squash, no. the goal is to help the, the faces or the, the person who's winning. This didn't even help them. That, that was my biggest issue with the entire thing. Chris, the main event is in the books. The good, the bad, and the ugly is as well. That means we are moving on to our WWE Extreme Rules Ultimate Preview. We have a short but stout six-match card here for this. We can call it maybe a B-level premium live event between WWE's two stadium shows. Uh, We will break down all six matches on the card, starting with what I would call maybe the undercard and moving into the expected main event. We're going to talk about everything that happened in these storylines across SmackDown and Raw, and we're going to give our predictions. And at the very end, we will give you a pre-show expectation grade for WWE Extreme Rules. Do not forget to join us for Extreme Rules Instant Analysis almost as soon as the premium live event is over this Saturday. Chris and I will likely need to delay the start of our taping for work reasons. However, we will have a podcast for you as soon as Extreme Rules goes off the air on Saturday night. Chris, let's kick things off with the Brawling Brutes against Imperium in a good old-fashioned Irish Donnybrook match. On SmackDown, Gunther promised to destroy Sheamus in their Intercontinental title rematch before Imperium wiped the Brutes from the face of the earth in this match. Sheamus announced Ridge Holland and Butch were stuck in Florida due to Hurricane Ian, but he was happy to fight. The henchmen attacked, but Sheamus took them out with a shillelagh. Then he dropped it and battled Gunther clean until Imperium held him back, and Gunther dominated him with chops, boots, and a powerbomb. Sheamus crawled to a mic, laughed, and asked, is that all you got? Imperium ran back in to beat his ass, and then Gunther landed a shillelagh shot to the face to end the entire thing. The Hurricane clearly screwed up plans here because this probably should have been Sheamus beating Ludwig Kaiser or Giovanni Vinci to strengthen him. That wouldn't have made sense, of course, if Imperium was ringside. The presumption, at least for me, is that Sheamus loses the Intercontinental title match with the Brawling Brutes beating Imperium on the premium live event. Uh, Gunther has been too good as IC champion to make a change. That booking would give him a solo win before one of his two other guys takes the loss, which would keep the Brawling Brutes strong as a team. It probably works out best for all involved to do it that way, though I do wish that WWE had saved the Sheamus rematch until he could actually beat Gunther and or win the title. Yeah, because they keep hyping up 
you know, Sheamus has never won the Intercontinental title. It's the only title he has left to win. That's a great story. I just, I don't think it's going to happen here and you kind of want it to it at some point. So there, there's that. I love this SmackDown segment. The whole face challenges one on three gets beat up, says is that all you got gets beat up again. Like that's classic baby, baby face stuff right there. Classic heat on, on the group. I, I, whatever the original plans were, I think this ended up being better. I just, I really like that segment. It worked great for essentially the lead in segment to their intercontinental title match. Uh, so, so, so that worked as for the match. Um, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. This, this may be the most enjoyable match on the entire show. Six man, no DQ doing a bunch of crazy shit. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I agree. I'm going to go with the brutes to win for the same reason you said that I think Guthner's going to retain the intercontinental title. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's not much more to the other than this is just going to be six guys kicking the shit out of each other. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Do you know what this match is going to be when you have one guy dominating another guy, dominating another guy? Everybody knows we deliver banger after banger after banger after banger. It's going to be a banger. This match is going to be a certified banger. And I do need a cleaner version of Sheamus saying that for our sound drops and future episodes. He calls himself, I think he calls himself King of the Bangers. <laughs> That's uh, good. Well. I would use that too. So um, yeah, I need to get those drops. If anyone can find uh, cleaner audio of Seamus saying either of those two things or both, please tweet it to us at Getting Overcast and I will throw it into the soundboard. Uh, real quick before we move on, long overdue shout out to Samantha Irvin. She, by the way, is SmackDown's ring announcer. She does an incredible job in general, but particularly when she's announcing Imperium. She changes yes. her tone and accent to properly say Gunther, Ludwig Kaiser, and Giovanni Vinci. She says, you know, she does a better job than I do, obviously. Uh, but she says all three of their names more properly than just saying them, let's say, in plain English. And it's a small detail that probably gets overlooked by most. But listen to her on SmackDown this Friday. And then I don't know if she's going to be doing um, the, the show, Extreme Rules. We'll see. But if she does announce them to the ring... Listen to the way she announces all three of their names, and it will be very obvious uh, the effort that she's putting in to make it sound unique and different. I had that same thought watching SmackDown. Great call. Yeah. All right, let's move to the next match. Drew McIntyre against Karrion Cross in a strap match. On SmackDown, there was a promo video. Cross promised to take McIntyre to a point of no return, saying they will be bound together in suffering. It was pretty well done. Also, an interesting note from last week. Dave Meltzer reported that when Scarlet's fireball missed McIntyre, the three of them live on SmackDown came up with a fresh cover finish for the segment on the fly. The fireball was supposed to be the end of the segment. So instead they did the low blow and then the cross jacket. That was not planned. It was totally improv. I criticized that last week. I thought it was just really bad, boring, repetitive, but now knowing it was not planned, it makes a lot more sense. That that's why it happened. I still didn't love that segment, but credit where it's due to all of them for making something happen. In terms of this match, Chris, to make a prediction, I think we've already kind of talked about the strap match stipulation being completely forced. A strap match is generally used in a, in a kayfabe storyline when you need to keep the other person from running away from you, right? And so you want to ensure that they're not far away. And obviously, you know, it's a heated feud, a blood feud where you need to use some type of weapon. That's why you use a strap. McIntyre introducing it here, he just did it out of nowhere. It didn't really make any sense. They could have picked anything. It could have been a tables match. It could have been a chairs match. In fact, had they done a tables match, 
they potentially could have allowed Cross to beat McIntyre. And then mm-hmm. you can kind of say to yourself, okay, they can run this back at Crown Jewel or wherever, and then McIntyre will get his win in clean fashion. But that's not what they're doing. They're doing a strap match here. I guess theoretically, you can make an argument that Cross could use the strap to make the cross jacket even more impactful. But here's the deal. McIntyre was red hot going into Clash at the Castle. Him losing that, obviously, was not ideal to some. They wanted him to become champion. But this entire time, Cross has been dominating McIntyre. So the question really is, is this the first match of a series or is this the culmination of that feud that they were using to go between the stuff with Roman Reigns? And I just don't see a good reason, given this is a strap match, for this to go on longer than one match. Because of that, I'm going to go ahead and predict McIntyre to beat Cross. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had Cross win because it's really his first major match and they do need to establish him. And there's really no better way to establish him than beating McIntyre. I just don't see how you have Drew lose to Reigns, get his ass dominated by Cross all of these weeks. He's never gotten up on him and then lose to Cross unless you're giving him like a four to six month vacation. You know, I I think I want Cross to win this match because he needs it. And if he opens with this loss, you're kind of neutered from the beginning again. But you're right that he's gotten over on Drew the entire time throughout all of this. And it's not like Drew to kind of lose a match like that. That said, I don't really know what Drew's doing moving forward. He he got his title shot and he lost, and apparently he's kind of moving on. So I don't really know what the future is for McIntyre at War Games. I'll tell you what he could do. Day one at Rumble at Mania. I don't really know what's next. What do you think? Uh, He could beat Gunther for the Intercontinental Championship at WrestleMania. I see. I would rather have Sheamus be the one to do that. Me too, but they're clearly ending the Sheamus thing here. I mean, he's he's going to lose the second Intercontinental title match. Yeah, that that, that it's it's possible. I think but that's, that's what they're doing with Drew. Seven months away. Um, five, five and a half. I'm. No, we got October, November, six. It's six, seven because it's mm-hmm. in April. Early. April. Got, it's beginning of October. So, uh, I I'm picking Drew. I don't love that I'm picking Drew. Five I would and a half. love for I just counted. I, I it's would, five and a half months. I would love for Karrion Cross to get a win here because I think there's a lot of potential. I like the presentation. Karrion Cross got absolutely no shot the last time he was up. I'm surprised this is kind of the first thing they're doing. I hope he wins. I don't think he's going to. I'm picking Drew. All right. So we're aligned so far through those first two matches. Two babyface wins for both of us. Uh, let's move to Edge versus Finn Balor in an I quit match. On Raw, Judgment Day hit the ring together. Balor said he'd be the cruel hand of fate that reminded Edge he doesn't belong in the business anymore. Dominic Mysterio said he hated Ray and had a new family. Rhea Ripley whispered in his ear like three different times during the segment. Balor reiterated that AJ Styles is his friend and he kept the olive branch extended. He said, I'm not a bad guy, so don't make me do bad things. Although that was a great line from Finn. So we had Styles and Ray against Balor and Damian Priest. Styles hit a double DDT as Ray got into it with Dom outside only to get clotheslined by Ripley. Styles had no one to tag, so Balor caught him blind with a shotgun dropkick and hit coup de grace for the win. AJ was mad at Ray for not being there, blaming him for the loss and then pushing him. Mysterio stormed off rather than confront Styles, so Judgment Day attacked AJ from behind with Balor saying he's Styles' only friend while punching him. 
Priest then hit South of Heaven to end the entire thing. The finish was sudden here. The match was really formulaic, but it was a means to an end. Judgment Day is a heel faction. They do heel faction things, and that can get repetitive, which it did in this case. Balor's promo was the only notable part. I thought it was really good, especially the way he closed it. But it was really tough for me, Chris, because this was the entire first 30 minutes of Raw, and it just felt repetitive and kind of boring. Yes, this is what I was talking about at the beginning of this show, which was that stuff was feeling repetitive and matches are long to open open the show and stuff like that. I was glad at least we got a promo early on. I kind of liked Finn talking and Rhea talking behind him, like backing him up, like as as Mm -hmm. like tell him Finn, basically. I actually thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, not much new kind of was what it was. It was it was fine. It was it's good to see Judgment Day doing something heelish and getting over rather than losing. So that's that's always a positive. Triple H has clearly made a concerted effort with two of the factions groups on his show right now. He has established damage control after some rough booking initially, Mm -hmm. and he's fixed the booking of Judgment Day, which I think is really impressive to be able to do both of those things, even if for us it was repetitive and kind of slow moving. The fact that now they are believable as a dominant group, that was not the case a month and a half ago, and that has completely changed. And I am, I just want to add, I am actually curious to see what happens with the Balor-Styles feud. It is intriguing to me. So, uh, Agree. That's It's an interesting mystery just kind of floating out there. Yeah. Now, not having Edge live on the go-home show, WWE said he was busy promoting Extreme Rules. It was a really poor decision. This is what I was talking about earlier. He's one of the top like three or four stars on the entire Extreme Rules card. And to not have him here for basically reasons, I think they said he was in Philly promoting Extreme Rules. There was a video that we got a taped promo from him sitting in his personal ring at home. So that just didn't kind of all come together. But the promo was good because he was sitting there. He was talking about how the veil of his character has been removed in this return run. Um, He said doubt and reality is kind of starting to set in. He did give Judgment Day credit for knocking him down. He blamed himself for existing in the first place. And he told Ray he understood why he was distancing himself from Edge and from Judgment Day. Edge said he was ready for a war and it would be a one-man gang, promising there was nothing Judgment Day could do to make him say, I quit. Exceptional promo from Edge as usual, far better than the opening segment with Judgment Day in terms of building anticipation for the match. Edge is great in the ring, but Chris, he is top tier on the mic. And this is just another example of Edge being awesome in a really important go-home moment. The only way it would have been better is if it happened in the ring live in Minnesota. Yeah, we got a lot of this Edge during the Thunderdome era because there were no fans. He would sit in the ring and cut a promo and do something and do a great job with it. Yep. And he did that once again. So it would have been nice to have him actually there for the go-home, but like you said, it kind of is what it is. As for this match... Yeah, go ahead. Go for it. Yeah. it's a tough call. Like it, it, it really is. This might, this might. Uh, there, there are a couple tough calls. I think almost every match on the rest of this card is a tough call. Um, I think every I, match except for Brawling Brutes Imperium could go either yeah, way. Yeah, all the rest that, of them can go either way. That 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 should make for an exciting show. So so we'll see. I don't really. I, in terms of how this plays out, I assume we're going to get interference from the Judgment Day. I'm assuming we're going to get Ray Mysterio helping him in some form. Maybe we'll get a Ray Dominic. We'll probably get a Ray Dominic face off at some point and Ray won't do something. Dominic will beat him up. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm oof, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Edge kind of for the same it's the same situation as the Drew McIntyre here and cross thing where I think Finn should get the win and I want him to but I think Edge gets over this might be the end of Edge and Judgment Day so to speak so Edge gets the win and maybe moves on so that's the thing by the way you could have made this easier on yourself by letting me go and then <laughs> hearing what I had yeah, to well, say and then making your decision <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I started and then didn't really know where I was going no it's totally fine so I'm of a similar mindset where really Finn Balor needs to be the one coming out of this with the win. And Edge has beaten everyone else in Judgment Day to this point, so it wouldn't really be an issue. But Edge straight up came out here and said, there's nothing you guys can do physically or mentally to make me quit. And he really does need to live up to that. You know, if, if we are to believe that this is his final run in WWE, like he's giving it another year and literally that's it, then we kind of need to look at it from a standpoint of, well, he needs to advance to another feud. In order to do that, he needs to get over in this situation. However, I do see an avenue in which the way they scripted this could lead to him quitting. And that would be, he said, there's nothing you can do physically or mentally to make me say I quit. What if Beth and his children are in the front row at Extreme Rules and Rhea Ripley kind of knocks Beth out and kidnaps the kids? I'm just like trying to to formulate something here. That would be the only thing that would go so far where Edge would have no choice but to say I quit, not him actually quitting and losing the match because of submission or because of pain but rather because he's protecting his family. He spoke in that promo about how important Beth and the kids are to him. So if something like that happens, it would make all the sense in the world for Edge to say I quit, Finn Balor to win, and Judgment Day to come out of the entire thing looking strong. But the problem in doing that is it wouldn't end the feud. And then we might be talking about Edge and Beth Phoenix against Finn Balor and Rhea Ripley, perhaps, at Crown Jewel or something like that. And maybe that is how the entire thing ends. Very similar to what happened. Was it Edge and Beth against Miz and Maurice? Yes. Is that what it was? Where yep. Edge, I think, never got the singles win. But like, I forget how that went down. But like maybe Edge no, I never think got he, the- I think he. I think he beat Miz and then he beat Miz again with Beth. Oh, is that what happened? Okay. So, so they yeah. could potentially be doing something like that here where maybe Edge never does beat Balor in a single, but... Him and Beth beat Ripley and Balor combined. Um, I don't know. I'm curious. But to your point, I do think it could legitimately go either way, as I do the remaining three matches on this card. And Chris, unless you have more to say, we can just get to those right now. I just want to say I love that idea that you just kind of with Beth and the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. And, And I think everyone badly wants to see Beth Phoenix and Rhea Ripley. And that would be a great way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, we have Matt Riddle versus Seth Rollins inside the fight pit. But Chris, not only that, this match now has a special guest referee, Daniel Cormier, multi-time UFC heavyweight champion, and he held a number of other titles there as well. Legitimately one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. And just to clarify for everyone, this match can only be won via submission or knockout. There is no such thing as a pinfall victory here. 
on Raw after Rollins' attack on Lashley and Ali that we talked about earlier. He stayed in the ring and introduced a fight video package, saying it would soon become synonymous with him. The package was okay. It was actually not as good as what WWE normally does. Riddle came out really serious, and Rollins reminded that they have a no-contact clause for Raw. Riddle said he'd kill Rollins, and the fans would sing basically his theme, but using the word bro. So, of course, the crowd responded and did exactly that. Rollins played into Cormier being a fan of his, given the viral WrestleMania video of Cormier celebrating when Rollins cashed in Money in the Bank. It's great. You guys need to go see it if you haven't. Then he went at Riddle about his kids having to pay child support. Riddle fired back about Rollins not holding a title in years, getting choked out by Reigns, and never main eventing WrestleMania, despite his wife doing so. He said it was a trend of Rollins coming out second, which would happen again Saturday. Suddenly, Cormier appeared on screen with a taped message putting over himself, saying he had a kinship with Riddle as a cage fighter and admitting that he used to cheer for Rollins. He promised to lay down the law in the match. I know Cormier has his own life and responsibilities, but not getting him in the ring for the go-home to physically hold these guys apart was a huge missed opportunity. I said the same thing with Edge not being on the go-home show. Cormier needed to be there. It felt like a missing piece to what was otherwise a really great dual promo segment between Rollins and Riddle. They hit all the key parts of their feud. They ramped up the intestine for the match, but getting Cormier would have put the entire thing over the top. You can bet if this was a build for SummerSlam or WrestleMania or Clash at the Castle or any event like that, Cormier would have been there. So I was disappointed by that, but I really liked what we got between these two on Monday night. Yeah, I liked it. I think, right, what was missing was Cormier standing between them, pushing them away grabbing someone and, and picking them up and doing something if they got out of hand or something like that. Really kind of emphasize the MMA kind of part of that. But the the, the back and forth was solid. You know, I, Seth bringing up the kids again is kind of old hat. He already did that. Uh, Riddle bringing up, hey, you haven't made an event at WrestleMania, you haven't won a title in forever. That was pretty solid. I did not like the line about Becky of like, hey, your wife made an event at WrestleMania and you haven't. Like, is that supposed to be an insult? I don't, I, it's it's really just that kind of old school kind of, not misogynistic, but just like, oh, your wife wears the pants in the family. It's, yeah, it Becky bordering Lynch's, on, a little bit bordering on that to some degree. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not an insult. I hate when faces do that. And it's the second time well, Riddle's done what, that. What should have happened is Rollins should have said, first of all, I'm proud of my wife. Second of all, yeah, but, but he did yeah. but, but that's a face thing if, if Rollins defends his wife. So that's, that's the whole issue with bringing it up, which yeah. is why I don't like doing it in the first place. But other than that, I enjoyed the back and forth. I would have liked a little more like Riddle, like I really want to hit you, but I can't. Like kind mm-hmm. of not, you didn't even quite got that. It was a little kind of joking, but it was good. It was solid. It, it built it up. The only thing really missing, like you said, was not actually having Cormier there. Right. Besides that, this thing is operating at a really high level. And you know what? Let's think back a couple months, right? Where what was it? SummerSlam, where this match got pulled off the card because uh, Triple H just decided not to have it and to wait because he wanted to build it for, what was it, I guess, Clash at the Castle. Mm-hmm. And now this in the fight pit, I got to say, at the time, we were all very upset that one of the signature matches that got us most excited for SummerSlam was pulled off that show. Now we look at that decision in retrospect, and it's very tough to look at it and say, you know what, it was the wrong decision, because it, it really wasn't. The feud got way more intense before they first fought, and now here we are getting the second match that, you know, we expected this to go to more than one month, more than one match, and it's inside the fight pit making its debut on the main roster. Cormier as the special guest referee. 
you know, Chris, before we give a prediction here, looking back on it, we hated the decision then. Now, I think it, you would look back on it. There's no way to say anything other than that it was positive. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, it still would have been nice. It, it, it has worked out for sure. Okay. Thought you'd be more positive about it, but that's totally fine. Let's move to our. Well, I, I'm just. I'm not gonna be like, oh, they clearly made the right call, not putting it. At I think they time. did it, clearly it make got... the right call. I think they clearly did. I, it's worked out. I, I, I just. I'm not gonna say it wouldn't have worked out the other way. So I think it would have been fine the other way to do that one match and then the second one perhaps at Clash of the Castle. But I think doing it this way, it's amped up the intensity more. Don't forget going into that first match. We're like, why are they fighting again? Like, what's the purpose of this entire thing? Mm -hmm. And by not having that match, they allowed the storyline to continue progressing where now it it, matters as a match. We care about the feud. We're not questioning why they're fighting each other. We were questioning Yeah, it turned on that via satellite promo that they did that was after SummerSlam. So you're right. Yeah, you're right. Which I did forget to mention, by the way. I mean, I did at the time, but here in building this match was a takeoff on the John Jones and Daniel Cormier uh, situation that happened off air when they did mm-hmm. uh, promos on ESPN ahead of one of their fights. So here you go now, and you have Cormier as the special guest referee in this spot. It all kind of ties in together. So that's how far out they thought about this entire thing, where they were putting this whole thing uh, together to make it intense, real. And now we have them fighting in the fight pit. Now, despite us thinking when the fight pit first debuted in NXT that it was going to be Matt Riddle's signature match, it actually wasn't because Riddle lost to Timothy Thatcher in that match. By the way, um, Kurt Angle was a special guest referee there. And then Thatcher fought, I think it was Tommaso Ciampa, if memory serves, in the second match. So while technically Riddle is one of only three people who has ever competed in the fight pit before, it's not exactly his match. And coming into this, you know, I'm of a double mindset here. On one hand, you have Riddle who... I'm not saying he's been lost since Randy Orton left because they've done a good job keeping him relevant, but he's no longer at his peak of popularity like he was at that time. And because of that, and the fact that you are trying to reestablish Rollins as someone who potentially could be the world champion, he could hold one of those titles going into WrestleMania if they decide to do the Cody Rhodes storyline, or potentially he could be the next United States champion if he goes up and beats Bobby Lashley Monday on Raw. We're in a unique situation here where like Riddle probably should win the match given the stipulation and the cage fighting experience. But let's not forget, even though Riddle has those bona fides, Rollins has a finishing move that literally knocks people out. It's a stomp. It's meant to affect your head and basically give you a concussion, allowing him to pin you. So I am of a mixed mind in this match as well. What I am doing, Chris because we've picked three baby faces so far in this match to get the wins, I'm looking for a spot where a heel can go over. And I don't know how you would potentially have Rollins lose this match and then challenge for the United States Championship Monday on Raw and then lose that as well. Or win it coming out of just losing to Riddle unless the goal is for him to lose to Riddle, beat Lashley, and then continue his feud with Riddle for the United States Championship. So I just can't wrap my head around all of those booking scenarios. And if it was with Vince McMahon, maybe I'd say, hey, it doesn't matter. Let's just do it. But because it's Triple H booking, I actually think this is a spot where Rollins beats Riddle inside the fight pit. 
I, I've never really known where this, I've never quite known how this feud is going to end other than if you, because, because it got so personal and they bring in the kid stuff, that's usually a telltale of like the face. will get it at some point, but he's already, he's, he, but he already lost a match. You know, he, he lost he a clash of the castle match. Is he going to lose another one to Rollins and then get a third for some reason? I, I don't, I don't know. And this is why we said almost every match in this card is very difficult to pick. I'm going to say, I don't know. And then there's that. Yeah, that's why I was talking before about announcing the Rollins versus Lashley match. Does Rollins just move on from there? Like it would be a clean break, but it would be a weird break to then go up a level and win the U.S. title and be the face of Raw. I'm going to say Riddle wins. I know we've, I think I've gone all faces so far. This is the first I think we're going to disagree on. We're going to, one of us is going to be wrong on, like, I think we're both understanding that the baby faces will not win all four men's matches. No. It's just very difficult to pinpoint which heel or which two heels potentially could win which ones. Yeah. I'm going to say Riddle though. Okay. Fair enough. Now let's go to what to me at least is the double main event, the two women's championships. We're going to start with the Raw Women's Championship, Bianca Belair defending against Bailey in a ladder match. On SmackDown, we had Bailey against Shotzi. Bailey called out Shotzi for talking shit. She promised to shut her up, climb the ladder, and become the new champion over Belair. Now a babyface again. Shotzi made her entrance with the TCB tank, and it even has a pyro trigger now, which is really cool. Definitely an upgrade on that. Uh, she hit an interesting DDT draping over the middle rope outside and a suplex in the corner. Bailey did a leg drag off the ropes and then hit Rose Plant for the win. In six minutes after the bell, Bailey hit a second Rose Plant, grabbed the ladder, flattened it, and laid Shotzi between the sides. But Belair made the save. Bailey attacked Bianca, but she went for Rose Plant as she went for Rose Plant, I should say, into the ladder. Belair picked her up in a KOD, only for Bailey to slide off her shoulders over the ropes outside. This was really solid because Shotzi actually got the vast majority of the offense in this match. I think it was a week or two ago, I talked about Io Shirai fighting Bianca Belair and Io got like no offense. When that, The whole point is supposed to be when you want to establish the challenger for the challenger to get some work. And then of course the champion or the um, bigger name goes over in the finish. We saw that happen with Braun Strowman where he gave a lot of offense. We saw it happen this past week in a number of spots with women's wrestlers. And we saw it here as well with Shotzi getting a lot of work in on Bailey, So I did appreciate that, even though the match was short. There wasn't much reason. It couldn't have been a little bit longer. That was frustrating, especially because Shotzi was just getting the crowd behind her. But there were bigger fish to fry. And that bigger fish was building the championship match for Extreme Rules. I agree with all that. I really enjoyed the Shotzi match. I thought it was good to give her that opportunity. She's kind of been back on TV the last couple of weeks, I think. And and. It set up an interesting kind of groundwork for this match. Yeah. All right. So over on Raw, Bailey was in a really good mood after Kai's win over Larray that we already talked about. She promised to keep their contract signing between them, reminding Belair that she's the one who asked for the match. Bailey talked some shit, saying the latter represents her climb in WWE. She accurately pointed out how she used to be the one with the ponytail and all the little girls holding signs for her. She said the fans gave up on her which is also true, by the way. And as she was rambling, Bianca shut her up by just signing the contract. Uh, Corey Graves held up the contract and the same white rabbit QR code that we discussed earlier was also on the back of the folder. Belair said comparison is a thief of joy and Bailey should never compare herself because she'll never be better. 
or do better than her. Bianca said Bailey didn't get over with the fans because she was pretending while Belair is being authentic. It was all kind of tailing off when Bailey suddenly pointed to the screen, which showed damage control attacking Bliss and Asuka. We talked about that. Distracted, Belair was then violently pulled backwards over the table by her braid in a really awesome spot. She got attacked really aggressively, but Belair was able to recover. She threw Bailey into the LED ring apron before running backstage. This led to the Bliss EO match that we talked about earlier. Then, after the main event of Raw, Bailey hit Belair with a rose plant before placing the ladder on top of her body. Bailey climbed to the top while holding the Raw Women's Championship with damage control on the side holding the women's tag team titles. The contract signing, it wasn't the most exciting thing, but this was another case. Well, Belair came across really strong on the mic and the Bailey attack on her at the end was super cool. It's tough to describe the way way that Belair was dragged over the table without seeing it, but it was shockingly violent in the moment. Yeah. And then to end Raw with damage control all atop the ladder, it was really good go-home moment to the event. It did end a bit too early. I talked about that because it kind of felt like we were waiting something, waiting for something else to happen there, but it never did. Still, for a go-home moment, the whole thing worked. And like I said, don't discount the fact that Belair has improved massively on the mic over the last two months. This was the segment, the, the post-match segment that I was like, all right, this is kind of the damage control I was I, I wanted to see. They're all in the ladders. They got all the belts. They look dominant. It's Bianca Becky uh, facing off. Uh, I'm sorry, Bian- Bianca Bailey facing off doing their thing in the early segment. I know it's kind of all mixed together, but I really like these two segments that involved ultimately the match, which is what this is about. Bianca has gotten a lot better on the mic. I do this. This is a weird criticism, but I just I wrote it down because it was kind of coming to my mind. She she doesn't quite her her, her like applause lines don't quite hit yeah. because she kind of says them too quickly and it, instead of like to the crowd and like you slow down like and here's the line I was going to drop to get people to cheer. It doesn't so people don't quite clap when they're supposed to clap. It's real weird. But I kept thinking about this is that a heel Bianca will be incredible if we ever get it. She will be, I, and she was good in NXT. Yes, yes. And I just, I don't know if that'll ever happen on the main roster because she's basically like the face of the women. She's, she's almost their John Cena. She's suffering from like opposite Sasha Banks, where Sasha Banks is way too good as a heel that making her baby face, people will cheer for her. But you're like, man, if she was a heel, like people could really sink their teeth into that. Bianca's the same thing. She's so good as a baby face that yes, you could make her a heel and people would boo her and they could really make it work. But she's so good as a baby face that you really kind of don't want to do that because then you're losing one of your strongest faces right. on, on the but company. But she's also so... The difference with Sasha, though, is that Bianca is so dominant. So Physically, dominant. Physically, yeah. she's got the championship. She's main event to one night of WrestleMania. She had the match of the WrestleMania the next year, this year. Uh, she's done it all. And at some point, like it's hard to maintain that as a face. You're kind of the John Cena type of, of, of face. And so I just think at some point, if they ever turn Bianca Hill, I think she's going to be great. Um, she, and I think the last couple of promos, we've seen that because she's talking about, Hey, don't be mad at me. Cause of how awesome I am is basically what her promos are. And it's yeah. like, that's true. <laughs> but that's also not always like a great uh, face promo either. She kind of is the female John Cena. Like, it's going to be really, she's so over. She's a public face of the company. Yes. She does a lot of charity stuff. 
Like it's going to be if they ever do turn or heal, it's going to be really difficult to do. And I don't know that it can be long lasting, but it is worth mentioning because you are right when she does become heal or if she ever becomes heal, it will work because she is that good. Um, now, I mentioned she earlier did that. she sorry. barely has to change. She just can talk about how awesome she All is. she has to do is brag. <laughs> she, she has to do she does now from yeah, an ego yeah. standpoint, bragging as opposed to a humble standpoint. That's, yeah, yeah, it's the only difference. That's the only difference. Uh, I mentioned earlier how the post-match attack that we got to end Raw may have ended the three-on-three feud, but it not only potentially wrote off both women in storyline, it took any support Bel Air might have had in this ladder match away, which by the way, since it is a ladder match, it's no disqualification. That leads me to one of two conclusions from a booking standpoint. Either Bel Air has no support and that just leads to Bailey winning due to shenanigans, or potentially Becky Lynch or the combination of Sasha Banks and Naomi, certainly not both, could potentially return in this spot to get her back and help her retain the title by fighting off damage control. It would be potentially interesting for Becky to be the person in that spot, given she was the one last time she returned who took the title away from Bel Air. This could prove that she's a babyface and has her back. Bel Air right now has the longest women's title reign in two years. Then that's Asuka during the pandemic taking it off of Becky. This is the perfect time to change the belt and put it on a heel about five months or so before WrestleMania. It would also give damage control all the titles, which satisfies the go-home moment on Raw. Now, this goes against our mantra of always picking the opposite of the go-home moment, which in this case would mean Bel Air retaining. But it just, to me, makes way too much sense to change it here, given she has a personnel disadvantage three-on-one and a match stipulation that allows her to lose without being pinned or submitted. If Belair doesn't lose to Bailey, I don't really know who takes the title off of her unless it's Ripley or like a returning heel Charlotte Flair. And the fact that I even said the last part oh makes God. me <laughs> mad that I put it out into the universe because that absolutely should not happen. And I do think Ripley should be the one to either win the title and have a feud with Belair or potentially take the title off of her. That would be great. But Bailey is so much more prepared for it and damage control as a group they already have two of the titles to not give the leader the title in a spot where she could easily win it to me wouldn't make a lot of sense. So I do have Bailey winning the Raw Women's Championship from Bianca Belair here. I also have Bailey winning. But the way that Raw ended, <laughs> I know, reconsider. I know. Or maybe that's Triple H or maybe that's Triple H actively trying to work against the trope that everybody knows about. Um, but I, I am going with Bailey. Got the numbers advantage. It's very easy to do a situation where Bianca is fiercely fighting one on three and almost winning and just getting overcome barely because of how dominant she is. And we know that and make her look great and she still loses. Uh, I, I, I think that's a pretty simple and obvious and easy way to go. And I think it would work. It has been a long title reign for her. And in general, faces don't hold the title that long. Mm-hmm. Face champions don't stick around for a long time because it's just naturally not as interesting the chase is more exciting than holding the title the chase is always more exciting and i think it's time to get back to one of those all right so let's go to what i expect to be the main event of the show the smackdown women's championship Liv morgan defending against ronda rousey in yes an extreme rules match on smackdown backstage rousey referred to morgan as quote hooters barbie saying she's not actually extreme and could have a hattori hanzo sword referring to the Kill Bill sword maker, yet Rousey would still kick Liv's ass. She called herself the most dangerous unarmed woman on the planet and said she'd be even more dangerous with a baseball bat. 
One thing I've never thought when I've seen Liv is the restaurant Hooters. It just never comes to my mind before. Uh, given the Becky Lynch comparisons that we've made with Rousey recently, I also thought it was pretty interesting that she pulled out a Kill Bill reference given Becky wore the bride's colors, the black and yellow, for a long time as the man. Now, this was not as good as Rousey's promo a couple of weeks ago, but I did think it was solid enough to kind of move things forward. I agree in that it was solid enough. And it, it, it's been a very interesting setup. We'll get in kind of the rest of this here, but yeah. it's been a very, very interesting setup into this match. And, right. and this was another part of that. All right. So continuing on SmackDown, Rousey fought Natalia. Natalia is apparently now giving her pink heart glasses to kids like her uncle Brett. She countered a step up knee into a one-armed powerbomb off the ropes. Rousey failed to counter the sharpshooter into an ankle lock and ate a discus clothesline. Rousey then countered Natty into the ankle lock for a submission in three minutes. Liv came out dragging a baseball bat. Rousey countered her at first. Liv swung but nailed the post. Rousey hit her with Piper's pit. Then she intercepted the bat and threw Morgan into the timekeeper's area. As security tried to stop her, she threw the bat and left. Liv then climbed over the barricade, attacking Ronda from behind, and the women had to be separated three different times. This ended up being a really hot segment. The match was yep. way too short for my liking. I have no idea why they did it that way, but it was a means to an end, which was Rousey just getting a win and doing it via submission. Better would have been for Rousey to get a hard-fought win over Natalia to make the victory more effective and meaningful, but the pull-apart brawl worked to amp up the intensity for the match, and it's great that in a, a pay-per-view, Extreme Rules, where we have six matches, all of them with stipulations, this is the only one where they did a pull-apart on the entire uh, lead-up to the show, because you can get into the repetitiveness where you have heated feuds, blood feuds, and you ha always have to do a pull apart. And that's the only thing you can do to make it seem intense. WWE did a really good job making a lot of other matches feel intense and important and saving the pull apart for Liv Morgan and Ronda Rousey. I agree. My issue with the pull apart is that it didn't go to, it, it went from pull apart to a it transition to a backstage conversation between McIntyre, Kevin Owens, and Johnny Gargano. And to me, that really kind of deflated it. As like, oh, it's out of control. We got to go to commercial. We'll be right back. It's like, oh, they're fighting. Nah, we're going to just move on with the show. Mm -hmm. That I was very surprised by that production decision. Didn't like that. One other thing, random. Uh, Ronda wrestling in that orange shirt. Every child matters is what it said. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me back in the day of just like when wrestlers would wrestle in random ass shirts. And I kind of missed that. You know, <laughs> like Billy Gunn would be wearing a South Park shirt or something like that in a match. I it just it was it felt random. It stuck out. But I was like, you know, what? Like, it, it, it kind of feels like a throwback. And I'd like to see that more of just random T-shirt wearing in matches. Uh, but other than that, they've done a good job building up the intensity of this one. Liv feels like she's trying to reach a new level to be extreme. She's she's jumping off a lattice through table. She's swinging bats at people. It feels like she's trying to prove that she deserves to be in the spot. And I think it's coming through. And I think I really believe the animosity going on here. So it's good. So let's get to our prediction for this match, Chris, and wrap things up. This is really tough. It is because Ronda Rousey is one of your top, I would say three female stars in the entire company right now, along with uh, Becky Lynch and Bianca Belair. And she has lost to Liv Morgan twice already. The cash-in and then the screw job that obviously uh, led to some distaste from the fans for Liv Morgan for a period of time that they have since fixed and they've repaired it and rehabbed it through this extreme storyline. 
Liv is doing a better job as champion than I think a lot of people are giving her credit for. And yes, it's also kind of fair to say that Ronda as champion has been played out. Like we don't really need it anymore. But the problem is this. If we are to believe that a Ronda Rousey, Becky Lynch match is going to potentially main event one of the two nights of WrestleMania, that's going to be for a title. And it's not going to be a title held by Becky Lynch, which means at some point between now and I would say the Royal Rumble, Ronda Rousey needs to win the championship. And I do think this is a spot where even though Rousey could beat Liv without extreme rules, it potentially creates an opportunity for Liv to lose the title, not just losing to Rousey, but losing to Rousey in an extreme situation. However, that's not my pick. I'm actually going to go with Liv Morgan retaining the title and beating Rousey for a third time. And you may say to yourself, well, despite everything you just said and her needing the championship at some point, why are you doing that? And there's two main reasons. One, Rousey has said numerous times what you and I have said numerous times about her and people like her. The other one really being Brock Lesnar. And yeah, you could throw in Goldberg as well. They do not need titles to be star attractions. Ronda Rousey could sell a pay-per-view match in a non-title situation just as well as she could in a title situation as long as her opponent is a big name. Now, whether that is Becky Lynch at WrestleMania or whether they figure out a way to get the title on Rousey between now and then, I don't know. But Liv Morgan has reinvented herself and revived herself with this Extreme Rules gimmick. And because it is Extreme Rules, I don't know exactly what they could possibly do. But theoretically, Liv could find something, a sledgehammer, uh, whatever, to knock Ronda out and pin her without Rousey losing what I would call cleanly, you know, in other words, without like taking a finisher and getting pinned one, two, three. Also, there is always the chance for a roll up or a pinning combination or any of those other things. So whereas I think we are going to have one title change on the show with Bailey beating Bianca Belair, I don't think the other one is going to happen here. My guess is Rousey actually pays off that storyline they've been building with Shayna Baszler. They wind up in a tag team feud as baby faces against damage control, and they go in that direction trying to revitalize the tag team division, which, by the way, has been completely dead since damage control won the titles. There's nothing. There's no challengers. There's no teams. There's nothing. They still need to get back to that. I think Rousey and Baszler are going to go in that direction where you have Liv Morgan continuing on as champion. And yes, if Charlotte Flair does return as a heel, this would probably be the spot where she takes the title off of her. Maybe Rousey then beats Flair. We can get to it numerous different ways. Rousey, by the way, could also beat Bailey for the title if Bailey ends up winning. Bailey's a heel, Rousey's a face. Rousey could then turn, and Becky Lynch could then fight her at WrestleMania. So my point is, there's a million different ways you can get Rousey as singles champion. At some point between now and January, it does not have to be in this match. Therefore, I have Liv Morgan retaining the title. I agree with everything you said about the possibilities, and honestly, Except if, you my get the, <laughs> if, if you want to get the most heat out of Liv losing the title, it would be to lose it to Charlotte. But I'm going Rousey here. Yeah, she's sense. lost twice. You know, she, she's lost twice. She's the bigger name. Liv has done a admirable job as champion, but it feels like there are so many 
situations you kind of have to build around her for her to get wins and do these things. We, you know, you mentioned last week the idea of her being like Alita, an extreme gimmick or something like that. I, I, I like it if she can physically take it. But I think Liv got her moment. And it's like what we just said with Bianca and that the chase is better than the run. And I think Liv back to being a chaser or back just doing something else or trying to find herself, trying to do something ultimately is better. I don't, I don't see Liv as a long-term champion. She's had it for a few months. You know, she's gotten a lot better. She's done a lot of stuff with it. I think there's a lot of things she can do without the belt too, moving forward. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say Ronda. I have a feeling that this may be the worst set of predictions I've ever given for a show. Like I wouldn't be, me too. I I really wouldn't (laughs) be surprised if it's the exact opposite of everything I said, where like Becky does return and helps Bel Air. So that way Bailey doesn't win the title. And then therefore, since they're going to do a title change on the show, Rousey beats Morgan. So those two are (laughs) wrong. Then Riddle wins. um, Balor ends up beating Edge. Like, I I just, I don't know, man. Like I could see, wait, did I, I predicted Balor over Edge, didn't I? No, we both. I think we both picked Edge. No, I think I picked because Balor. I don't, you you put up a great scenario. Oh no no no! Balor I picked Rollins. I picked Rollins over Riddle. That was the heel I put. Right. So my point is, yes, I have a yes. feeling like through those matches, somehow I'm going to get all of them wrong. It's just going to be like I, I gave both sides of like why it could go either way, and then I just picked the wrong side, which would really follow a very poor week of NFL uh, picking games against the spread, which yeah, is I uncommon. I'm usually too. very good at that, but didn't have a good week, this, so. but but that it's what makes for an interesting show is that we don't know how I don't any know. match yeah. almost any match is going to turn out and and that's kind of rare with WWE shows so that's I think it's a good thing yeah now we've given our breakdowns and predictions for every single match on this WWE Extreme Rules card Chris which leaves us to give our pre-show expectation grades we're going to let you know what level we expect the overall show to perform at and you the listeners are getting overheads you will have a chance to give your pre-show expectation grade 7 p.m. Eastern, one hour before Extreme Rules on Saturday. We will post a poll on our Twitter account. You give your grades. We will discuss it on our instant analysis episode. Chris, whenever we do grades, I always allow you to go first. What is your pre-show expectation grade for WWE Extreme Rules? On paper, when I look at the card, I think B. And then I always think about, as I say with all these are we going to get some moments? Are we going to get some things that matter? Don't forget the and potential I, Bray White return with the White Rabbit. Right. And I picked two women's championship changes. And maybe we get Bray Wyatt in some form. So I think there's a potential for a lot to happen. I could be wrong and there could be nothing happening. So ultimately, I'm going to say B+. <laughs> That's exactly where I am as well. It's um, There's a couple things that this has going for it. We already discussed my distaste that none of the men's titles are on the show. Again, it's not about only having women's titles. It's just about there being four other championships that are not being defended, all of which, or three of which at least, could have been in some way. They could have figured it out. They could have given Hit Row a title shot against the Usos if they wanted to. Um, So I don't like that there's such a low concentration on the championships. But what I love is that we have an Extreme Rules card with six stipulation matches. Every single match on the card is special. It is the complete polar opposite from the last Extreme Rules that we got, where I think we only had one Extreme Rules match and nothing else. And that is going to be a horror show. <laughs> How do you like that? Huh? 
That was actually two extreme rules ago. I just wanted to play the sound off. But the point is, I love that we have six stipulations here and that amps up the intensity for all of these matches. The lowest match on the card, a six-man tag with nothing on the line coming after an Intercontinental Championship has a chance to be one of the best matches on the show from an excitement standpoint. So I am fully invested and involved in Extreme Rules and I am extremely excited for it going into the show. At the same time, it does seem like it has a ceiling on it because there is a lack of title matches, because a number of really big names in the company are not on the show at all, including the entire bloodline, which is the number one storyline in the company. None of them have anything on the show, not Solo, not Sammy, not the Usos, and certainly not Roman that, Reigns. That surprises me now that I didn't really think about it. So how, right, how can I... nothing bloodline on here. Yeah, so how can I give an a pre-show expectation grade, which we almost never give because we want to give shows an opportunity to exceed, meet, or fall below our expectations. How can I go with an A when all of that is missing? I can't. So I am exactly where you are. B plus, I do believe it will exceed my expectations, but we don't know whether we're going to get Bray Wyatt, White Rabbit. We don't know whether we might get a Becky Lynch return. We don't know whether we're going to get any title changes. If they do some of those things, and if there are a couple surprise booking decisions in those men's singles matches, then all of a sudden this thing could definitely be an A minus A or hell, even an A plus. But going into it, I cannot go in that range. I have to go with a B plus. Yeah, there, there is potential for these things to overperform because of the stipulations and stuff like that. But it is just it's notable just how much of the biggest stuff is not there. And when that happens, you're putting a ceiling on, on the show. Not a question about it. Let's discuss, Chris, how the rest of this week is going to unfold. The Getting Over Wrestling Podcast will be back on Thursday for our weekly NXT and AEW show. A couple real interesting things. AEW has its three-year anniversary episode. NXT, maybe its first white and gold Show, we're not exactly sure. I, I tried to get some information. I don't know if they're redoing the set. I don't know if they're redoing the entire graphics package. So it's going to be curious to see what we get on NXT this week. But both shows should be notably interesting. We will cover all of that on our Thursday podcast as we do every single week. And then on Saturday, either 6.30 or 7 p.m. Eastern, we will have a live WWE Extreme Rules pre-show on Twitter spaces will take 30 minutes. We're going to break down every single match on the card one more time. If new stuff happens from the Go Home Smackdown, we will certainly include that in our discussion. We will open up the mics. You guys can give your own questions and comments. You can speak to us. You can DM us and tweet us questions that we'll read on the air. Whatever the hell you want, be sure to join us live 6.30 p.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern on Saturday for the WWE Extreme Rules pre-show on Twitter spaces. And then Saturday night, shortly after Extreme Rules goes off the air, Vintage Chris Vanini, the Silver King Adam Silverstein, we will convene for WWE Extreme Rules Instant Analysis. You will have that podcast, hopefully, before you go to sleep Saturday night, if not first thing Sunday morning when you wake up. So do not forget to listen to that. And then one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel, we will be back with our next regular WWE episode. We'll talk about Fallout, from Extreme Rules, everything that happens on that forthcoming Raw, and anything that goes down on SmackDown that does not directly have to do with Extreme Rules. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for the live show on Twitter Spaces, but so you can send in DMs and questions, and so you can participate in our pre- and post-show polls for WWE Extreme Rules. And of course, remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast 
So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop that five-star rating on Apple. Take a few moments. Leave a written review as well. If you do, you will read it live right here on the show. That is it for this week. Thanks once again to Chris for joining me. At this time, the Silver King is going to sign off, leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.